peace, namaste, and shalom. Everybody out there in dreamland, I am the beyond top secret Texan. Join me on my podcast, the Beyond Top Secret Texan podcast, where I explore the outer limits of human abilities, top secret military technologies, the reality of extraterrestrial Earth alliances, secret space wars, advanced cryptozoology, subjects of theosophic truth, esotericism, and the occult. Beyond the Top Secret Texan Podcast. Did on various child care organizations. The warehouse contained a large library, two kitchens, a sauna, hot tub, and a video room. The video room seemed to be set up as an indoctrination center. It also appeared that the organization had the capability to produce its own videos. There were what appeared to be training areas for children and what appeared to be an altar set up in a residential area of the warehouse. Many jars of urine and feces were located in this area. Contrary to the claims of U.S. News, running an international terrorist organization specializing in the trafficking of children is definitely more than just eccentric. Unless, that is, the organization doing the trafficking is run by the Central Intelligence Agency. Group leader Marion Petty shed additional light on his non-connections to the agency in an interview with Steamshovel Press in 1998. Recounting the history of his group, Petty reminisced, going back to World War II, I kept open house mainly to intelligence people in Washington. Us people passing through, things like that, Petty was not, mind you, an intelligence asset himself. In fact, he has spent his entire life serving as a counter-spy. As a private citizen, he has taken on the job of monitoring the agency. As for his wife, Petty claims that he sent her, in as a spy, to spy on the CIA for me. She was very happy about it, happy to tell me everything she found out. She was in a key place, you know with the records, and she could find out things for me, presumably, the same applies to Petty's son. Petty sums up his relationship with CIA by acknowledging that there are some connections, but not to me personally. Interestingly enough though, the group that claimed no direct connection to the intelligence community quite obviously had very powerful people within that community protecting it. As the final Customs Service memo reveals, On Thursday, February 5, 1987, Senior Special Agent Harold and I assisted the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, MPD, with two search warrants involving the possible sexual exploitation of children. During the course of the search warrants, numerous documents were discovered which appeared to be concerned with international trafficking in children, high-tech transfer to the United Kingdom, and international transfer of currency. On March 31, 1987, I contacted Detective Jim Bradley of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, MPD. I was to meet with Detective Bradley to review the documents seized pursuant to two search warrants executed in January, 1987. The meeting was to take place on April 2 or 3, 1987. On April 2, 1987, I arrived at MPD at approximately 9 o'clock a.m. M. Detective Bradley was not available. I spoke to a third party who was willing to discuss the case with me on a strictly off-the-record basis. 
I was advised that all the passport data had been turned over to the State Department for their investigation. The State Department, in turn, advised the MPD that all travel and use of the passports by the holders of the passports was within the law and no action would be taken. This included travel to Moscow, North Korea and North Vietnam from the late 1950s to mid-1970s. The individual further advised me of circumstances which indicated that the investigation into the activity of the finders had become a CIA internal matter. The MPD report has been classified secret and was not available for review. I was advised that the FBI had withdrawn from the investigation several weeks prior and that the FBI Foreign Counterintelligence Division had directed MPD not to advise the FBI Washington field office of anything that had transpired. The initial arrest of the finders in Tallahassee went almost completely unnoticed by the media. So too did another arrest in that same state in August 2000, just before Florida gained newfound fame as the land of the hanging chads. The arrested man was Wayne Camilly, and the charge was operating an online child pornography site. The Los Angeles Times reported that the West Palm Beach home in which Camilly was arrested, not unlike the finder's van, was filled with so much rotting garbage, trash and cat feces that the agents had to borrow oxygen masks and hazardous materials suits from the county fire department to carry out the search. Seized in the raid were numerous videotapes and a computer. What makes Camilly's arrest of significance here is that, as the Times noted, it was initiated by police investigating Belgium's most notorious pedophile murder case. It seems that Camilly had close connections to Felix de Conning, a suspect in the kidnapping and molestation of a 14-year-old girl, and de Conning in turn had links to Marc Dutre, and so it is that we end up right back where we began, with the case of the Belgian Beast. The brief Times report closed with these words, U.S. officials couldn't elaborate on the connection between de Conning and Dutre, but said they were part of the same child pornography, molestation and murder investigation. It is unlikely that the press will ever revisit the case of Wayne Camilly. Tellingly, the LA Times article quickly disappeared from the newspaper's online archives. As with so many other cases, the final words of the U.S. Customs Service Memorandum on the Finder's investigation will likely provide the epitaph for this case as well. No further information will be available. No further action will be taken. The Guardian reported in January 2001 that Interpol, the international police agency, has agreed to set up an electronic library of child sex victims at its headquarters in Lyon, France. The first images that were to be processed into that database were 750,000 photos seized by British authorities in the Wonderland raids. In April 2003, Britain's The Register reported that the U.S. Justice Department was setting up an even larger database. A huge database system designed to find sexually abused children is under development in the U.S. The U.S. Justice Department's Child Victim Identification Program will include a catalog of thousands of illicit pictures seized from suspects and collected from the web. This could make the Justice Department the owner of the world's largest collection of child pornography, AP reports. According to that AP report, child pornography investigators in several countries had already contributed images to the database, as had the FBI, Secret Service, Postal Inspection Service and exploited children groups. The goal is for the system to eventually include most of the illicit photographs in circulation on the Internet. Advanced image recognition software will be utilized in an attempt match and identify the children in the photographic images, which will, as the register noted, make it easier to identify and locate sexually abused children.
That is certainly an encouraging development, if, that is, it represents a sincere effort by law enforcement personnel to gather evidence against the child exploitation rings and aid the physically and emotionally ravaged victims. However, there could also be a very sinister goal being pursued. Researcher Arlene Tyner, who has spent a considerable amount of time interviewing and corresponding with victims of mind control operations, noted in a Probe magazine article that some of these victims were turned over to military, CIA doctors by pedophile fathers or other sexually abusive relatives. CIA officials also blackmailed family members known to produce kitty porn in order to gain control of their already abused and psychologically fragmented children. It is certainly within the realm of possibility that the high-profile child pornography raids in recent years, which invariably result in relatively few arrests and even fewer prosecutions and convictions, are not intended to punish the victimizers, but to identify and compromise them. And is it not inconceivable that the databases being compiled will be utilized as something of a recruitment list to identify those persons who have been preconditioned, so to speak, for future mind control operations? One thing can be stated with certainty about the thousands of victims of today's child pornography and child prostitution rings. Someday, many of them will come forward to tell harrowing stories of their early childhood abuse. They will speak of acts of depravity committed against children that are so heinous as to be almost beyond human comprehension. And yet, as difficult as their stories will be to believe, they will be documented by the images stored in Interpol's computers and in the U.S. Justice Department's computers. But how many of these victims will be believed? Part 2. There's something about Henry. You don't understand me. You are not expected to. You are not capable of it. I am beyond good and evil. Legions of the night, night breed, repeat not the errors of the night prowler and show no mercy. Richard, the Night Stalker, Ramirez, there are other, sons, out there, God help the world. David, son of Sam Berkowitz, what about your children? You say there are just a few? There are many, many more, coming in the same direction. They are running in the streets, and they are coming right at you. Charles Mills Manson, the really scary thing is that there are a lot of people who are not in prison, a lot of people who are not in prison, who were far more successful than I, Theodore Robert Bundy, all across the country, there's people just like me, who set out to destroy human life. Henry Lee Lucas, Chapter 7, Sympathy for the Devil. Henry is an unusual prisoner. He's been given a high security cell and a few special amenities. Jim Boutwell, Sheriff of Williamson County, Texas. On June 30, 1998, Henry Lee Lucas, arguably the most prolific and certainly one of the most sadistic serial killers in the annals of American crime, was scheduled for execution by the state of Texas. Given the advocacy of the death penalty by then-Governor George W. Bush, things were not looking good for Henry. Bush had not granted clemency to any condemned man throughout his tenure as governor. In fact, no governor of any state at any time in the history of the country had carried out more judicial executions than Governor Bush. So Texas was definitely not the place to be for a man in Henry's position. And considering the nature of Lucas's crimes, it seemed a certainty that nothing would stand in the way of his scheduled execution. Henry did not attract any high-profile supporters, the way that Carla Faye Tucker did. Then again, even personal appeals to Bush from the likes of Pat Robertson failed to dissuade the governor from proceeding on schedule with Miss Tucker's execution. There was nothing to indicate that Henry would fare any better, particularly since his crimes were of a particularly brutal nature, involving rape, torture, mutilation, dismemberment, necrophilia, cannibalism, and pedophilia. 
His tally of victims ran as high as 300 to 600 by some accounts, including Henry's own, at times, though such figures are likely inflated. What seems certain is that Lucas, frequently working with erstwhile partner Otis Toole, a self-described arsonist and cannibal, savagely murdered dozens of victims of various ages, races, and genders. All indications were then that Henry's execution was a foregone conclusion. Then a most remarkable thing happened. On June 18, just 12 days before Henry's scheduled demise, Governor Bush made a special request that the Texas State Board of Pardons and Paroles, whose members were all Bush appointees, to review Henry's case. Strangely enough, eight days later the board uncharacteristically issued a recommendation that Henry's execution not take place. The next day, just three days short of Henry's scheduled exit from this world, Lucas became the first, and ultimately the only, recipient of Governor Bush's compassionate conservatism. The official rationale for this act of mercy was that the evidence on which Lucas was sentenced did not support his conviction. There was a possibility, said the board, that Henry was in fact innocent of the crime for which he was convicted. The problem here is that many of the 150-plus death row inmates who did not receive special gubernatorial attention prior to their executions had evidence supporting their claims of innocence, and yet their appeals to the governor were met with scorn and mockery. So why had Bush suddenly developed a keen interest in not executing innocent convicts? And why, once Henry's life was spared, did he promptly lose this passing interest and begin once again rubber-stamping every execution order that crossed his desk, including one for a great-grandmother in her 60s who was convicted of killing her chronically abusive husband? And why is it that Henry was granted full clemency, rather than a temporary stay during which his case could have been reviewed? That is exactly what Bush did in the case of convicted murderer Ricky Nolan McGinn. Tellingly, the proliferation of press reports on the McGinn case made no mention of the governor's earlier actions on behalf of Lucas. And what if Lucas was in fact falsely convicted, and what if his innocence was so obvious that the governor had no choice but to commute Henry's sentence? What then does that say about the Texas criminal justice system and the ease with which it sends innocent men to their deaths? Are we to believe that Henry's case was an isolated one and that none of the other men put to death during Bush's reign had equally credible claims of innocence? And what are we to make of the rather peculiar fact that while Henry has been convicted of no fewer than 11 homicides, the only death sentence he ever received was the one that the governor had no problem setting aside? Maybe Henry just had uncannily good luck. He had at one time been scheduled to stand trial for four additional homicides, crimes for which his partner had already been convicted. The trial, however, was cancelled on economic grounds, said to be a waste of taxpayer money since Henry was already scheduled to die. Was Henry just extraordinarily lucky to have his only death sentence set aside by a governor who handed out but one commutation? Or was there something more at work in the Lucas case? Surely there had to be some reason why Bush would take uncharacteristic actions to spare the life of a man who had led a life of such brutality. And this was certainly not the first time the criminal justice system had shown such inexplicable leniency towards Lucas. The first big break for Henry came in June 1970, when he was released early from a sentence he was then serving following his first murder conviction. Sentenced to 20 to 40 years, Henry was released after serving 10, just after he appeared before the parole board and explained to them that he was not ready to return to society and would surely kill again if released. As Henry told it, the questioning went something like this, Now, Mr. Lucas, I must ask you, if we grant your parole, will you kill again? Henry, yes, sir. 
If you release me now, I will kill again. Nevertheless, the board decided that 10 years was an adequate amount of time to serve for the crime of killing his mother. Within a year of his release, Henry found himself back in prison after attempting to abduct a young girl. Despite his prior criminal record, which began long before the killing of his mother, Lucas served just four years before again being granted an early release, this time in August 1975. Beginning shortly thereafter, and continuing for nearly eight years, Henry and his new friend, Otis, committed an untold number of lurid murders. Henry was finally arrested in October 1982 on suspicion of committing two murders, but he was promptly released. He was not arrested again, for the last time, until June 1983. After the final arrest, Henry was taken on tour, so to speak, by various law enforcement officials around the country, during which time he confessed to committing some 600 murders in 26 states. There were various charges made at the time that Henry was being used by his escorts to clear troublesome, unsolved murders in places he had never even been. That quite likely was the case. Henry seemed to have a very chummy relationship with his captors, particularly the Texas Rangers, and provided a valuable service to them by taking the rap for an amazing array of murders. That alone, however, does not explain the personal attention given to Henry's case by Governor Bush. For that, we need to look at some of the more infrequently noted details of Henry's life history, many of which have been provided by Lucas himself. Henry, as it turns out, has some interesting tales to tell. Just a couple years into his incarceration, he told his story in a book written for him by a sympathetic author. The book, entitled The Hand of Death, The Henry Lee Lucas Story, tells of Henry's indoctrination into a nationwide satanic cult. Lucas claimed that he was trained by the cult in a mobile paramilitary training camp in the Florida Everglades. His training, he said, included instruction in abduction and arson techniques, as well as in the fine art of killing, up close and personal. Henry further claimed that leaders of the camp were so impressed with his handling of a knife that he was allowed to serve as an instructor. Following his training, Henry claimed that he served the cult in various ways, including as a contract killer and as an abductor of children, whom he delivered to a ranch in Mexico near Juarez. Once there, they were used in the production of child pornography and for ritual sacrifices. Henry has said that this cult's operations were based in Texas and included trafficking in children and drugs, among other illegal pursuits. What Henry claimed, essentially, is that what appeared to be the random work of a serial killer was in fact a planned series of crimes often committed for specific purposes. Some of the murders were political hits, according to Henry, including assassinations of foreign dignitaries, local politicians and wealthy businessmen. This was not true for all of Henry's crimes. Some he did just because that is what he liked to do. And it was the one thing that he was really good at. The beauty of this arrangement was that it allowed Henry to conceal the true motive for many of his crimes. Those performed as contract hits looked like all of his murders, senseless and random acts of violence. In Henry's version of events, it was Toole who was responsible for Henry's recruitment and training by the cult and for many of the pair's exploits thereafter. Interestingly, in all the standard biographies of the pair, Toole is said to have been Henry's severely retarded, and decidedly junior, partner. It is quite clear though from reading an interview granted by Toole to a journalist of sorts that he was not by any means retarded. An educated, no doubt, but certainly not severely retarded. Otis was able to express himself quite clearly, though perversely, and displayed a substantial level of knowledge about the practices of Satanism, which isn't really surprising given that he was, as Joel Norris has written, raised as the devil's child by his Satanist grandmother. 
Tool has described a childhood that was complete with all the trappings of satanic ritual abuse. He has told of being forced to have sex with numerous family members and others, including his father, his stepfather, his stepfather's friends, and his older sister Drusilla. His grandmother, who lived with Otis' father as man and wife, although they were actually mother and son, is said to have been a member of a multi-generational death cult. Tool once explained to an interviewer how he had been involved in all this since I was a child, through the cult, you know, he has spoken of having urine poured on him, of eating dog meat, and of watching two cats fight to their death while their blood dripped down upon him. Otis also had this to say of his childhood years, I used to go with my grandmother into graveyards, we used to dig up all kinds of bones, and she used to take the bones and do devil worship. He has also told of once being forced into a grave to pluck the bones from a freshly rotting corpse. Young Otis was also frequently dosed with barbiturates, and he has said that he used to hear voices. Tool's older sister, Drusilla, spent time in a mental hospital, after which she reportedly committed suicide. Her children were placed in the care of their uncle Otis and his friend Henry Lee Lucas. Two of them, Frida and Frank Powell, accompanied the pair on their homicidal wanderings and were forced to witness, and at times participate in, the rape, killing and mutilation of the victims. Frida aka Becky ended up scattered in a field after suffering years of sexual abuse at the hands of Henry and Otis. Frank fared slightly better, he was committed to a mental hospital. A third sibling, Sarah Pierce, who shared with her uncle Otis a passion for arson, was convicted and imprisoned for indulging her passion. Lucas also suffered through an incomprehensibly abusive childhood. In fact, when it comes to early childhood abuse, there are few parents of future serial killers who can compare to Viola Lucas, Henry's mother. So severe was her physical abuse of young Henry that he once slipped into a coma for a day following a particularly brutal beating. On another occasion, through a combination of abuse and neglect, Henry lost one of his eyes. Viola was, as is the case with the mothers of many serial killers, a prostitute. She routinely entertained her customers in the presence of Henry, who was compelled to watch. Viola also dressed young Henry up as a girl for the first seven years of his life and prostituted him out to her customers. Toole has also spoken of being forced to dress as a girl. Though Henry and Otis may represent extreme cases, their horrific childhoods should not come as much of a surprise to most readers. That serial killers have suffered abusive childhoods has become something of a cliché. It is a fact that is acknowledged in most serial killer biographies, though it is usually followed by the caveat that such a childhood history does not excuse subsequent actions. Western society preaches that we are ultimately responsible for our own actions. Scapegoating society, or a horrendously abusive childhood, is simply not acceptable. Do we not all, after all, act of our own free will, regardless of our past? That is certainly what we have been conditioned to believe. But what if we do not all act of our own free will? What if a lifetime of being bombarded with propaganda has, to some extent, deprived us all of that ability? And what if some of us have been completely robbed of the ability to exercise free will? And what if suffering through a chronically abusive childhood lays the groundwork for that to occur? What if Viola Lucas was right when she told young Henry, I'm going to teach you the beauty of pain and you're going to be my slave for the rest of your life? And what if Henry could only break the bonds of that slavery by killing dear old mom? And, finally, what if by killing her, Lucas only succeeded in acquiring a new slave master? What are we to make of Henry's bizarre tale of being a contract killer? And what of Henry's other stories, including the one about being a close friend of Jim Jones of the People's Temple? 
Henry claimed on numerous occasions that it was he who was taken on a chartered plane to Guyana to personally deliver the cyanide to Jones that was allegedly used in the now infamous Jonestown massacre. What are we to make of such stories? Could Henry have been telling the truth about being a contract killer? And if so, did the contracts he was receiving have some kind of government connection? Though Henry did not address the subject in his book, the training camp, as he described it, clearly had military connections. And Henry has explicitly stated that the cult included among its members various socially prominent individuals, including high-level politicians. Could that be the reason for the actions taken by Governor George W. Bush in June 1998? They think I'm stupid, but before all this is over everyone will know who's really stupid. And we'll see who the real criminals are. Henry Lee Lucas, Chapter 8, Henry Portrait of an MK Ultra Assassin. It is being like a movie star, you're just playing the part. Henry Lee Lucas, describing what it is like to be a serial killer a U.S. Navy psychologist, claims that the Office of Naval Intelligence had taken convicted murderers from military prisons, used behavior modification techniques on them, and then relocated them in American embassies throughout the world. The Navy psychologist was Lieutenant Commander Thomas Nerud of the U.S. Regional Medical Center in Naples, Italy. The information was divulged at an Oslo-NATO conference of 120 psychologists from the 11-Nation Alliance. The Navy provided all the funding necessary, according to Nerut. Dr. Nerut, in a question-and-answer session with reporters from many nations, revealed how the Navy was secretly programming large numbers of assassins. He said that the men he had worked with for the Navy were being prepared for commando-type operations, as well as covert operations in U.S. embassies worldwide. He described the men who went through his program as hitmen and assassins who could kill on command. Careful screening of the subjects was accomplished by Navy psychologists through the military records, and many were convicted murderers serving military prison sentences. So said the Napa Sentinel, in a series of articles published in August-November, 1991. Anyone familiar with the intelligence community's long-standing obsession with the concept of mind control will immediately recognize what Dr. Nerut was describing as an MKUltra project. The existence of this particular manifestation of the project was first reported by British journalist Peter Watson of the Sunday Times, who attended the conference and interviewed Dr. Nerut, who told him that they looked for candidates who had shown a proclivity for violence. This was at a time when numerous pseudo-investigations of the intelligence community were being undertaken, including those by the Rockefeller, Pike, and Church committees. Nehrut told Watson that he was revealing what was obviously highly classified information only because he assumed that it was about to surface anyway. As it turned out, Nehrut seriously overestimated the interest of the various committees in practicing full disclosure. After making his unauthorized comments, Nehrut promptly disappeared from public view. He reappeared briefly to make a feeble attempt at retracting his prior statements, but at that point, it was a little too late. Watson went on to expand upon his initial research to produce a book, War on the Mind, which was one of the better books from the late 1970s on the subject of mind control and psychological warfare research by the intelligence community. Walter Boer referenced Watson's work as well, in his difficult-to-find operation Mind Control. So this cat, once let out of the bag, proved rather difficult to stuff back inside. The intelligence community, it seemed, was recruiting from prisons to make use of the natural talents of convicted killers to produce the fabled Manchurian candidates, otherwise known as mind-controlled assassins. 
The operation described by Nehrut involved killers drawn from military prisons, though there is a good possibility that parallel programs were being conducted in civilian prisons as well. Prisons, after all, have provided fertile ground for any number of MKULTRA sub-projects for decades. As the Napa Sentinel article noted, mind control experiments permeate mental institutions and prisons. That was particularly true in the 1960s and 1970s. The NATO conference at which Dr. Nehru dropped his bombshell was held in July 1975. Strangely enough, the very next month, August 1975, Henry Lee Lucas was released early from prison to begin his eight-year reign of terror. Strangely enough, during his prior ten-year prison stay, Henry spent four and a half of those years in a mental ward. Throughout that time, he received intensive drug and electroshock treatments. He later described that period of incarceration as a nightmare that would not end. During that time, he complained constantly about hearing voices in his head, taunting him day and night. This was ostensibly the reason for his confinement in the mental ward, though it could just as well have been the result of his confinement and treatment. Henry later spent additional time in an institution in 1980, in the midst of his killing spree. Is it possible that Henry was recruited and programmed while in prison, so that he could later be used by the so-called Hand of Death cult? Lucas himself said that he emerged from prison a changed man, before his incarceration, he killed only in the heat of the moment, but when he re-entered society it was with a cold-blooded determination and the professed desire to kill as many people as possible. And he certainly had shown a voracious appetite for violence, enough so to make him a very attractive candidate for an assassin training program. Indeed, Henry is just the kind of man who would be considered a valuable asset by the intelligence community. For anyone who doubts that the CIA or any other of the numerous interwoven intelligence agencies would recruit such a man, it is important to remember that we are talking here about the same agencies that recruited some of the most notorious war criminals of the Third Reich, men like Klaus Barbie, Joseph Mengele, Adolf Eichmann, Otto Skorzeny, and Reinhard Galen. Henry's depravity pales in the shadows of men such as those. Lucas probably couldn't even hold his own against some of the organized crime figures, like Lucky Luciano, Meyer Lansky and Santos Traficanti, who were likewise recruited by the U.S. intelligence community. Or against the numerous thugs that the CIA has propped up as dictators around the world, men such as Somoza, Pinochet, Duvalier and Pavali, to name just a few. In the company of such men, Henry would be just one of the boys, no less valuable an asset than, say, Dan Mitrion the CIA torture aficionado who was a boyhood friend of the infamous Jim Jones. Mitrio, known for having homeless persons kidnapped for the purpose of giving torture demonstrations to South American security forces in his soundproof, underground chamber of horrors, was hailed as a hero and martyr when he himself was tortured and killed. Frank Sinatra and Jerry Lewis even flew into his hometown and performed a benefit show to raise money for the widow of such a great American. So in the world of spooks, Henry would be in good company, as would his partner, O.S. Toole, who would not even have the distinction of being the only cannibal recruited by the CIA. As Douglas Valentine revealed in the Phoenix program, the CIA's assassination, torture and terror program waged against the people of Vietnam, the Phoenix teams consisted of U.S. Navy SEALs working with CTs, described by one participant as a combination of ARVN deserters, VC turncoats, and bad motherfucker criminals the South Vietnamese couldn't deal with in prison, so they turned them over to us. The spooks were only too happy to employ the services of these men, who taught their SEAL comrades the secrets of the PSYWAR campaign. 
so depraved were the agency recruits that some of them would actually devour their enemy's vital organs. All in a day's work for America's premier intelligence agency. Also included in the CIA rogues gallery of distinguished alumni, according to a number of researchers, is Lucas's self-described close friend, the aforementioned Jim Jones. What then are we to make of Henry's professed connection to the tragic People's Temple? Several investigators have documented that the Jonestown massacre was not by any means a case of mass suicide, as was reported by the U.S. press. It was in fact a case of mass murder. The Guyanese coroner, Dr. C. Leslie Mutu, concluded that only a handful of the 913 victims at Jonestown died by means of suicide on that fateful day. All of the rest were summarily executed, some by lethal injection, some by strangulation, and some simply shot through the head. It is apparent then that if Lucas was in fact at Jonestown at the time of the mass murder, he was quite likely doing considerably more than just serving as a delivery boy. A man of Henry's talents would be an invaluable asset in a cleanup operation of that type. And what was being cleaned up was, of course, itself an MK Ultra project, complete with vast stockpiles of drugs, sensory deprivation equipment, and a band of zombie-like assassins who gunned down Congressman Leo Ryan's entourage just before the massacre, thus necessitating the cleanup operation. It is strange then that Henry would claim a connection to a man whose operation was notable primarily for being a breeding ground for mind control, assassins, and mass murder. Several years after the publication of Henry's book, journalist Maury Terry told a story with chilling parallels to the one told by Henry and Otis. What Terry revealed, in The Ultimate Evil, is that the murders attributed to the son of Sam and the Manson family, as well as numerous other interconnected killings, including possibly the Zodiac murders, were not what they appeared to be. Rather than the random work of serial, mass murderers, many were actually contract hits carried out for specific purposes by an interlocking network of satanic cults. In other words, they were professional hits orchestrated and disguised to look like the work of yet another, lone nut, serial killer. That is, of course, exactly what Henry claimed his crimes to be, several years before Terry published his compellingly documented work. Terry's book has been unfairly maligned by much of the media his contention is that David Berkowitz had nothing to do with the planning of the killings, he was just one of several gunmen. Berkowitz was essentially a patsy who took the fall to protect the rest of the cult, particularly those members who travel in the upper strata of society. That scenario has been roundly ridiculed. Many of Terry's critics have pointed to the fact that Ed Sanders' The Family, which in a sense laid the groundwork for Terry's later work, was recalled by its publisher and reissued Sands' two crucial chapters. That is purported to be proof that the allegations both authors make, particularly the allegations regarding the Process Church, are without substance. What such critics unerringly fail to mention is that it was only the U.S. publisher that bowed to pressure to recall the book. The book's publisher in the UK, on the other hand, stood behind the book and its author, a decision that withstood legal challenges. Terry's numerous critics also unerringly failed to mention that Queen's District Attorney John Santucci reopened the Son of Sam case in 1979 after concluding that Berkowitz did not act alone, I believe David Berkowitz did not act alone, that in fact others did cooperate, aid and abet him in the commission of these crimes. Among other things, Santucci pointed out, the sketches of the individuals, the composites, were a wide divergence from Berkowitz, and indeed, they were. In fact, the sketches were, at wide divergence, from one another, as the New York Post noted, the identical drawings of the NYPD, which some say are better than photographs, give seven different looks to the killer. 
Santucci also noted, as did the Post, that an unusual number of people who were connected to the case and who were identified by Berkowitz as being complicit in the crimes are no longer living. Berkowitz, by the way, had a number of interesting connections. Police found numerous telephone numbers scrawled on the walls of his apartment, including the unlisted, private home numbers of prominent doctors living on Long Island, the number for a large Scientology training center in Florida, and the number for the Montauk Golf and Racquet Club, an exclusive country club on Long Island that lies adjacent to a purportedly closed military base that has been tenuously linked by researchers to ongoing mind control operations. A more recent case, unreported in the American press, closely mirrors the scenario portrayed by Terry, complete with a patsy taking the fall for the crimes of the socially prominent and a trail of dead witnesses, accomplices. In 1994, a farmhand named Pietro Pacciani was convicted of 14 serial killings committed in Italy's Tuscan woods. In April 2001, the UK's The Times reported that the case had returned to haunt Italy, and in a new, even more sinister guise, police in Florence have reopened the case in the light of new evidence. And the evidence suggests that while Pacciani may indeed have carried out the murders, or some of them, the real masterminds behind the gruesome killings were a group of high society Satanists who carried out, and perhaps still carry out, weird rituals that beggar belief behind the respectable facades of their Tuscan villas, led by a distinguished doctor with a sick and twisted mind. In August 2001, The Guardian added, Police now believe that a group of between 10 and 12 wealthy, sophisticated Italians orchestrated ritualized murders over the course of three decades and got away with it, allowing their careers and reputations to blossom to this day. These unidentified suspects were described as an occult group which directed the murders. The Times article noted that Pacciani's conviction was overturned on appeal, but he was about to be retried, which is possible under Italian law, when he died, supposedly of a heart attack. According to the investigating magistrate on the case, Paolo Canessa, Pacciani's death was definitely not due to natural causes, someone was prescribing medicine that killed rather than cured Pacciani. Pacciani's defense attorney, Carmelo Lavrino, has noted that, at the time of Pacciani's death, he wasn't in any danger. He has also said that evidence at the scene suggested that Pacciani had been dragged by his feet after his death. The most likely explanation is obviously that Pacciani was eliminated, as the Guardian put it, lest he reveal the real monster, or monsters. According to the Times, a number of other suspicious deaths have surrounded the case. Renato Malatesta, Pacciani's close friend, was found hanging in a stable with his feet still resting firmly on the ground. Malatesta's daughter Milva was found dead with her three-year-old son in a burnt-out Fiat Panda. Another burnt-out car was found containing the body of Milva Malatesta's lover, Francesco Vinci, another Pacciani acquaintance. A year later came the murder of Anna Milva Mete, a local prostitute who had had an affair with Vinci's son, whose body was also burned. Investigators have now come to the belated realization that a large network of people were involved in the killings, some studying the most likely spots in which to strike, while others served as lookouts. They all took orders from one person who then took part himself in the actual killings and mutilations. Investigators also now believe the female body parts, the left breasts and the genitals were used in black masses at night in remote Tuscan farmhouses. Among those now being sought by authorities as a mystery woman, perhaps a member of the doctor's circle, who beat up Pacciani's elderly wife in January 1996, knocked her out with sleeping pills and searched the house from top to bottom, also sought as an artist who Pacciani worked for as a gardener, and whose home was found to contain incriminating evidence. He disappeared just days before the trial began and he is believed to be hiding out in, of all places, Belgium.
By September, yet more of the cover-up was unraveling. The observer dropped a bombshell that Monster of Florence may have been a satanic sect bankrolled by the Secret Service. Suspects by then included a doctor, ambassador, and an artist. Pacciani's death was being treated as a murder, and questions were being raised about his unexplained wealth, which included two houses and more than $75,000 in cash. Michelle Jutari, the investigating magistrate on the case, who has received death threats, has said that the monster of Florence was not Pacciani, but a cultured man of great professional success, esteemed and powerful, but with psychopathic hidden impulses. It makes you wonder how many Jekylls and Hydes there are in civilized cities like Florence. Indeed, it does. Consider the civilized city of Auxerre, France. In late March 2002, The Guardian ran a brief report by correspondent John Henley that began as follows. The French Justice Ministry took disciplinary action yesterday against three prosecutors involved in the case of an alleged serial killer who escaped prosecution for more than 20 years. The Justice Minister, Mary-Lise Labranchu, sacked one prosecutor, Daniel Stilinovich, and transferred another, Jacques Casals, from his post in the Paris Public Prosecutor's Office, for their negligence in the case of Emile Lewis, a third, retired, prosecutor, René Meyer, was stripped of his honorary title. All three magistrates worked in the northern Burgundy city of Auxerre in the 1980s and 1990s and were found guilty by a disciplinary panel of a range of serious errors, including lack of professional honor. Quote dot. Fifteen months before that report, Emile Lewis had confessed to murdering seven mentally handicapped women who had disappeared without a trace between 1977 and 1979. He had subsequently withdrawn his confession and asserted that the girls had been abused, abducted and finally killed by a ring of high-ranking local men. At the time of the women's disappearances, investigations had been hastily dropped and the missing women listed as runaways. It was not until more than two decades later, following Lewis's confession, that a serious inquiry was made into the fate of the missing girls. That inquiry led to what The Guardian referred to as further, even more disturbing discoveries. The chief prosecutor in Auxerre, Suzanne Lequo, said late last year that almost all the inquiries into the cases of about 30 young women who vanished in Burgundy over the past 30 years had been either mysteriously shelved or deliberately mishandled. Moreover, the files relating to most of the criminal inquiries shelved in Auxerre between 1958 and 1982, including 17 missing young women, had been either stolen or destroyed, and a dozen post-1982 inquiries involving missing young women for which the files still remained had all been inexplicably dropped. Lawyers for the victims' families are talking of a sex ring which abducted, raped and murdered up to 30 girls in the 70s and 80s and was powerful enough to stifle any subsequent investigation. A full inquiry into what may prove the biggest cover-up in French legal history is underway. In July 2002, the Monster of Florence case was in the news once again. A series of profaned corpses were turning up, and there were indications that these crimes, committed against the corpses of the elderly, were linked to the case. The first such corpse had been discovered the previous month, on the summer solstice. A report in the Sunday Herald indicated that the satanic rites performed in conjunction with the monster of Florence killings had been conducted at a senior citizen's home where Pacciani had once worked as a gardener. Residents at the home at that time included the father of Florence's deputy attorney. Some of the profane corpses surfacing in the summer of 2002 were also connected to the home. Also revealed in the Herald report was that, in 2001, police had raided the home of Aurelio Matei, a psychiatrist for the French Secret Services. 
1992, Matei authored a book that alluded to evidence in the monster case that was not uncovered by investigators until a decade later. The home of Francisco Bruno, a criminologist and prominent television talking head, was also raided. Bruno's name was on one of the drug prescriptions that killed Pacciani. Any additional information on the case may be difficult to obtain, since the Herald report also noted that police had issued a news blackout on the ongoing investigation. It seems quite likely, however, based on the evidence that has surfaced, that Pacciani was in fact a fall guy for a cult of powerful individuals. In May 2003, the UK's Guardian reported that convicted French serial killer Patrice Allegre was not the lone psychopath he was made out to be at his trial last year, according to the sworn statements of former prostitutes. He is alleged to have acted for most of the 1990s as the leader of a sadomasochistic sex ring, supplying women and drugs for debauched and at times violent evenings frequented by senior policemen, judges, businessmen, sports personalities and politicians. The claims surfaced during a police investigation into allegations that Patrice Allegre, a serial killer who was serving a life sentence for killing five women, was for years offered illegal protection by corrupt police and magistrates in the southwestern city of Toulouse. According to a BBC report, Allegre, a policeman's son and an employee of the police department's cafeteria, is also under investigation in connection with a criminal network in Toulouse said to have involved minors and cocaine. Other allegations, as recounted by The Observer, involved white slavery, sadomasochism, rapes, sex with minors, drug dealing and appalling brutality, all in the heart of the government of one of France's most historic and most civilized cities. It is alleged that these crimes were committed at Toulouse's Palais de Justice and at a chateau owned by Toulouse Council. Toulouse's Prosecutor General, Jean Wolfe, was fired for covering up links between senior officials and the exploitation of vulnerable girls. Three judges were scheduled for questioning about acts of torture and barbaric acts, pimping and rapes of underage girls. Allegre claimed that at least some of the murders he committed were ordered by some of Toulouse's most prominent citizens. The killings, he said, served to silence witnesses and eliminate blackmail threats arising from what The Guardian described as sadomasochistic orgies involving politicians, judges and police. Two former prostitutes who had been recruited by Allegre for some of those parties corroborated his allegations. One judge admitted that there was some truth to the story told by the two women of an official cover-up of Allegre's crimes. Another judge has admitted to drinking with Allegre, who is known to have run Toulouse's prostitution business in the early 1990s. As the investigation progressed, Dominique Baudis, a former television host, found himself at the center of the scandal. He was perhaps the most prominent politician in Toulouse, having served as mayor from 1983 to 2001, preceded by his father from 1971 to 1983. Baudis was named as one of the four powerful figures that reportedly ordered the murders. The other three were not named, but one was said to be a high-ranking police officer, and another a senior magistrate. Baudis reportedly owned a lake house, equipped with hidden cameras, where sadomasochistic orgies were held. The French periodical Le Mans sought to assure readers that the accusations arising from the orgies were not about simulated acts of torture and erotic games among consenting adults. This was real torture, accompanied by other degrading acts, committed against prostitutes, some of whom were underage. By early June 2003, the Sunday Herald was fretting over the potential fallout from the investigation, such as the damage to the police, the judicial system and the municipal administration that some have suggested the underpinnings of the state and its democratic institutions are under threat, magistrates, politicians, journalists, businessmen, 
policemen and sportsmen are lining up to be questioned as part of the inquiry. Police were under fire, scrambling to explain why many of Allegre's murder victims had been officially listed as suicides. The investigation was being expanded to include 20 additional cases, and a French magazine, as The Guardian reported, had revealed allegations that the former mayor, Dominique Baudis, had a sexual relationship with the murderer, Patrice Allegre. Also in June 2003, Michel Barral was appointed as the prosecutor general for the case. His appointment immediately raised concerns among lawyers, according to The Observer, owing to the fact that Barrow had previously been credited with stopping an investigation into corruption among senior right-wing politicians in Paris before last year's general election. Barrow was, in other words, no stranger to political cover-ups. Before the month was out, the evidence in the case, according to a Reuters headline, had evaporated. Allegre reneged on his confession after one of the prostitute witnesses purportedly admitted lying about seeing senior officials at S&M orgies. She was promptly jailed, recalling the jailing of witnesses in the Franklin case, one of two prostitutes who accused Allegre of procuring young women for politicians to chain to walls and abuse in sadomasochistic orgies has been placed behind bars as judges investigate the authenticity of her story. With the cover-up firmly in place, the European media moved on to other things. Henry Lee Lucas's story then, as bizarre as it may initially appear to be, is certainly not without precedents or parallels. Other events that have transpired since Henry first began telling his tales of the hand of death lend further credence to various aspects of his story. For example, the Finders case, discussed in Chapter 6, illustrated that there are in fact coordinated efforts by networks of individuals to transport abducted children to clandestine locations in Mexico. Of course, Henry could have just been making lucky guesses when he talked about the networks of satanic cults running murder for higher operations and child abduction rings. And there could be nothing to the fact that Toole, who was convicted in the state of Florida, shared with Henry the fate of having his death sentence commuted. Florida is, of course, a state that is also overly zealous in its application of the death penalty, although not zealous enough to execute the likes of Otis Toole. In any event, it's interesting to note that both of these men had their death sentences set aside in a state that was, until January 2001, run by a member of the Bush family. It is interesting also to take note of the case of the man known as the railroad killer, Rafael Resendez Ramirez. On July 13, 1999, Ramirez was reported to have walked across a bridge from Juarez, Mexico into El Paso, Texas and turned himself in. At the time, he was wanted for a string of nine alleged serial killings. Mirroring the circumstances surrounding Henry's final arrest, Ramirez had been taken into custody several weeks prior by the U.S. Border Patrol, only to be promptly released, despite his presence on FBI Most Wanted lists, and despite the issuing of alerts to the Immigration Service, and despite the fact that a nationwide manhunt was underway. Between this detainment and his surrender, Ramirez claimed four more victims. Apparently, he still had a little work left to complete. Having done so, Ramirez then made the incomprehensible decision to surrender to Texas authorities. Crossing the border into Texas, Ramirez left a country with no death penalty and entered the execution capital of the Western world. The Los Angeles Times, in reporting on his surrender, noted he was adamant he wanted to surrender to a Texas Ranger, and he had not requested an attorney and was cooperating with detectives. In the same article, it is noted that authorities say Ramirez is strikingly intelligent. Strikingly intelligent? Not based on the actions he took on July 13, 1999. But then again, perhaps Ramirez knows something about the Texas criminal justice system that the rest of us do not.
Interestingly enough, Lucas was reportedly fascinated by the Ramirez case. While the manhunt was underway, he told the Houston Post, I follow his case on the TV, I'd like to meet him. They presumably would have much to talk about. Ramirez, by the way, was born in Matamoros, Mexico and, according to his mother, was raised there outside of the home by non-family members. At some time I have start ed to hear funny voices, like a person calling me, but no one call me, Rafael Reisendez Ramirez, in a letter to a reporter in Houston following his surrender to authorities, can I tell you who really I am, with all the secrecy that's in the family? I only have one purpose in life, and that's to express some of my views and some of the views that I have been instructed, anything that can put down Christianity, anything that can put down democracy, anything that can put down freedom. Rafael Reisendez Ramirez, delivering his closing argument to a jury in St. Louis, March 1989. Chapter 9, Rancho Diablo. No one wants to believe the cult story. The TV people cut it out. The writers don't write about it. Henry Lee Lucas. One of the more compelling aspects of Henry's story was his contention that he had ties to cult-run ranches just south of the U.S. border. In 1989, just such a ranch was excavated in Matamoros, Mexico, just south of Brownsville, Texas, yielding the remains of 15 ritual sacrifice victims. The Matamoros case so closely paralleled the stories told years earlier by Lucas that some law enforcement personnel in Texas chose to take a closer look at Henry's professed cult connections. In fact, Jim Boutwell, the sheriff of Williamson County, Texas, later told a reporter that investigators had verified that Lucas was indeed involved in cult activities. Following the discovery in Matamoros, Clemmy Schroeder, identified as Henry's spiritual advisor, sent to the state attorney general a map Lucas had drawn for her in 1985 that identified locations where murder, kidnapping and drug running operations were conducted. She told a reporter for the Brownsville Herald, Henry told me there were a lot of different cults in Mexico who were involved in satanic worship and everything. I found the map and realized he had marked this cult and drug ring near Brownsville. The attorney general's office chose not to take any action. In an interview conducted following the exposure of the Matamoros cult, Otis Toole claimed that it was not the specific ranch with which he and Henry were associated, but he also emphasized that there were many such interconnected operations along the Texas-Mexico border. Though downplayed in most press reports, the Matamoros cult was largely an American entity. Its leader was Adolfo Constanzo, a Cuban-American born in Miami, Florida and raised in Miami and San Juan, Puerto Rico. Its high priestess was Sarah Aldrete, an honor student at Southmost Texas College in Brownsville. One of the cult's top lieutenants, Serafin Hernandez Garcia, also lived in Brownsville and attended Southmost as a law enforcement major. Seraphin's grandfather was the owner of Rancho Santa Elena, where the cult performed its ritual sacrifices and buried many of its victims. Another cult member, drug baron Elio Hernandez Rivera, also hailed from Brownsville. Yet another lived in Westlaco, Texas. Constanzo has been described by chronicler Clifford Linedicker as a thoroughly ruthless and malevolent genius with a messianic ability to command the loyalty and blind obedience of followers who joined him, zombie-like, in a loathsome blood feast of dope dealing, terror, torture, and human sacrifice, a description that sounds as though it were written with Charles Manson in mind. Born November 1, 1962, to a 15-year-old Cuban immigrant, likely an underage prostitute, Constanzo was blessed by Apollo Mayambi high priest at the age of six months and declared the chosen one. Until the age of 10, he was trained by Satanists in San Juan and Haiti, before returning to Miami in 1972. 
Back in Florida, Constanzo was mentored by another satanic high priest who taught him, among other things, the art of grave robbing. His mother, meanwhile, busied herself with being arrested some 30 times. But as Michael Newton has written, the charges never seemed to stick, and she always escaped with probation. Dade County neighbors considered Constanzo's mother to be a witch or sorceress. Authorities once found her living in a vacant, dilapidated apartment that was heavily smeared with blood, feces and urine. She was charged with trespassing and child neglect. By mid-1984, Adolfo had moved to Mexico City, where he served as something of a psychic to the stars, earning extravagant fees and living quite lavishly. His fastidiously neat and orderly home in a high-dollar suburb of Mexico's capital city was, interestingly enough, located directly across from an elementary school. Described as having a magnetic personality, Constanzo attracted an array of famous and colorful people, including entertainment stars, fashion models, transsexual nightclubs, <coughs> politicians, businessmen, crime lords, police officials, and civil servants. One of his followers was Irma Serrano, a singer, actress, and the high-profile mistress of a former president of Mexico. Another admirer was Florentino Ventura, the head of the Mexican branch of Interpol. Ventura was such a devoted disciple that he considered himself to be Constanzo's godson. He allegedly killed himself in Mexico City on September 17, 1988, after killing his wife and another woman. Strangely though, all three were killed with the same burst of gunfire. The Matamoros cult was first exposed in early April 1989. Police searching the ranch on April 1 discovered drugs and occult paraphernalia. Returning on April 9, authorities arrested four members of the cult, all of who were members of the Hernandez drug family. Two days later, the first bodies were exhumed from Rancho Santa Elena. Some of the victims had been beheaded, while others had been grotesquely disfigured by machete blows to the head. Brains, hearts, lungs and other internal organs had been cut or torn from many of the bodies, and some of these were found stewing in cauldrons in a shed at the ranch. Spines had been ripped from the decomposing corpses to fashion ceremonial necklaces. One victim was reportedly boiled alive, another skinned alive, all were mutilated to varying degrees. These victims included the owner and secretary of a company that served as a front for a cocaine processing lab, an informant for the Federales and his mistress, two federal narcotics officers, three former police officers, and the American nephew of a U.S. customs agent. There were also a number of law enforcement personnel within the cult, including Salvador Vidal Garcia, a Mexico City federal judicial police agent who was in charge of narcotics investigations. Juan Benitez, the commandante of the federal judicial police, claimed that there were another six agents involved, but we have no proof at this time to bring charges. In addition to the victims found at the ranch, the cult was also said to be responsible for the deaths of at least seven members of a drug trafficking family who were killed in a mass slaughter because they had evidence of police complicity in the drug trade that they had threatened to expose. That massacre occurred on, of all days, Walpurgisnacht of 1987. The victims' bodies showed clear signs of sadistic torture. Fingers, toes and ears had been removed and genitals had been excised. Two brains were missing and a portion of a spine had been ripped from one of the bodies. On April 17, Serafin Hernandez Rivera, said to be the patriarch of the cult, was arrested in Houston, Texas. The next day, just two days shy of Hitler's birthday, a U.S. grand jury issued indictments for the still-at-large Constanzo and ten of his followers on various drug trafficking charges. 
Three days later, on April 21st, Mexican authorities formally charged the four captured cultists with multiple counts of murder, kidnapping and drug trafficking. Just two days after that, a large contingent of heavily armed Mexican federales burned down the death shed at Rancho Santa Elena, destroying a wealth of valuable evidence. Constanzo and most of his followers remained in hiding and the subjects of a massive manhunt. On May 6, police searching for a missing child are said to have inadvertently stumbled upon the apartment hideaway of Constanzo and four of his followers in Mexico City. Shots were allegedly fired from the apartment, which resulted in nearly 200 police officers virtually instantaneously surrounding the building. A ferocious gun battle ensued, with thousands of rounds fired in a 45-minute exchange. Amazingly though, none of the cultists were shot and only one officer was wounded, and that was in the initial gunfire that came from the apartment. Constanzo and his male lover were reportedly executed in a closet on the orders of the high priest himself. The three survivors were captured alive and charged with a multitude of crimes. Reports immediately surfaced claiming that Constanzo had faked his death by substituting the body of another cultist. The two bodies in the closet had been riddled with automatic weapon fire, making identification difficult. Mexico City newspapers carried reports of witnesses claiming that two men had been seen fleeing the scene of the shootout. The body identified as Constanzo's was claimed by U.S. consular officials, allegedly acting on behalf of Constanzo's mother, and flown to Miami to be promptly cremated. As the investigation proceeded, reports on the case grew more disturbing. Police reported finding blood-spattered altars in the homes of many of the suspected cultists, and Mexico City newspapers openly speculated that human infants had been ritually sacrificed by the group. Some reporters opined that babies might even have been bred specifically for that purpose. 1997-1989, there were 74 unsolved ritual homicides in Mexico City, 14 of those victims were infants. Other reports noted that in custody, High Priestess Sarah Aldry displayed what Linnetiker described as signs of a split personality. As the days wore on, three separate personas became evident. A U.S. customs agent told the Houston Chronicle that she clearly had a dual personality. Like most of the other cultists, Aldry, who had married on Halloween Day, 1983, had links to the Hernandez drug family. A particularly compelling report in the Brownsville Herald revealed that the drug-trafficking Matamoros cult was part of a massive, hemisphere-wide, drug-trafficking network. Federal agents have established a pattern of drug trafficking from the Hernandez family in Matamoros to top Chicago mob bosses. Interestingly enough, Constanzo was reportedly cited in Chicago during the time that he was the focus of the manhunt, but those reports were scoffed at by authorities. In the wake of the Matamoros case, two members of the Texas state legislature, Senator J.E. Brown and Representative Sam Johnson, introduced a bill aimed at combating cult-related ritual crime, which they asserted was a burgeoning problem in Texas and elsewhere in the country. After a decade had passed, the problem had not abated, as became evident when yet another excavation was begun, at a ranch near Juarez, Mexico. That property was, strangely enough, located precisely where Henry Lee Lucas had claimed that the Hand of Death cult maintained a ranch. The first reports on the Juarez Ranch surfaced on December 1, 1999, less than five months after Reyesendez Ramirez had surrendered to U.S. authorities at a location on the U.S. border very near the ranch. A Los Angeles Times report noted that the clandestine burial grounds were practically within sight of the U.S. border. Early reports indicated that authorities anticipated exhuming between 100 and 300 bodies from mass graves on the ranch, including 22 missing U.S. citizens and a number of former FBI and DIA informants. 
the investigation was quickly expanded to include at least three more possible burial grounds in the area. U.S. authorities, perhaps having learned a lesson from the well-publicized Matamoros case, immediately moved in to take charge of the investigation. The brazen violation of Mexico's sovereignty was roundly condemned by the Mexican press. A group of irate Mexican senators grilled the country's foreign minister on the FBI's aggressive role in the investigation and loudly denounced the fact that exhumed bodies were being transferred to the U.S. for forensic examination. By mid-December, with the U.S. firmly in control of the case and with all evidence being clandestinely transferred onto U.S. soil, Mexico's attorney general was claiming that the early reports had been wildly off the mark. The new reports claimed that only nine bodies had been found at the three separate burial sites and no more were expected to be uncovered. Press coverage of the case almost immediately ceased, after the media had assured everyone that there's nothing to see here, folks. The final report carried by the Los Angeles Times maintained that some victims had reportedly disappeared after being detained by men in Mexican police uniforms, raising questions about the extent of police corruption in Mexican law enforcement. Peter Smith, the director of Latin American Studies at UC San Diego, echoed that sentiment, the clandestinity raises the issue of potential complicity on the part of local or state authorities. Not surprisingly, reports made no mention of the extent of police corruption in American law enforcement. Officials were quick to claim that there was no connection between the bodies exhumed at the ranch and the unsolved murders of hundreds of young women in the Juarez area. There is no consensus on the number of women that have been brutally raped, tortured and murdered since the killings began in 1993, but estimates run as high as 500, with hundreds more reportedly missing and possibly dead. As the website Americas.org recalled, free trade supporters once claimed the North American Free Trade Agreement NAFTA, would turn Ciudad Juarez into the city of the future, and perhaps that is exactly what the city has become, a city where NAFTA's free trade rules ensure that a company's right to profit trumps the rights of government and the protection of citizens. In the 1960s, the Mexican government offered Western corporations a sweetheart deal, build factories on the Mexican side of the border to manufacture and or assemble goods, operate with wanton disregard for environmental and labor laws, and, to top it off, pay no local taxes. So-called maquiladoras, which had previously been known as sweatshops, soon began to dot the U.S.-Mexico border. Before long, they numbered in the hundreds. The highest concentration of those maquiladoras is in Juarez, which currently is home to about 500 factories employing 200,000 workers. About 80% of the factories in Juarez are American-owned. As the labor-intensive maquiladoras proliferated, the populations of border cities like Juarez quickly swelled. But as the population grew, there was no corresponding investment in the cities. As the observer noted, there has been no attempt to create infrastructure, no roads or housing. Taxation is voluntary for companies, and most pay none. According to official estimates, the population of Ciudad Juarez has tripled to 1,200,000. Unofficial estimates run as high as 2 million. Many of the new arrivals are young women, since the workforce employed by the maquiladoras is 70% female. Most of these young women end up living in the shantytown neighborhoods that have sprung up in cities like Juarez. These neighborhoods have no real roads, no street names, no addresses, no utilities, and no public services. Violence is endemic. Drug lords rule the streets. According to La Prensa, life in Juarez is punctuated by narco-related executions and kidnappings in broad daylight committed by death squads working for the lords of the lucrative trade. 
The Guardian described Juarez as a city associated with grinding poverty and home to one of Mexico's foremost drug trafficking organizations. It is against this backdrop that the murders have been committed. Most of the victims have been maquiladera workers. Some of them have disappeared while traveling alone late at night after having their work shifts changed at the last minute of after being locked out for arriving at work late. Recent reports reveal that yearly similar murders are now occurring in other Macuilatera towns along the U.S.-Mexico border, including Chihuahua City, Nueva Laredo and Matamoros. Many of the Juarez victims have had modeling photographs taken of them while they were at work in the factories. Some circumstantial evidence suggests a disturbing scenario. The photographs, taken by recruiters working within the maquiladoras, are arranged in albums that are then used as catalogs from which victims are selected. The first Juarez victim's body, by most accounts, was found on January 23, 1993. The first suspect, Abdul Latif Sharif Sharif, was arrested two years later, in 1995. Sharif had an interesting history, one with close parallels to many other alleged serial killers, as will be seen in later chapters. Born in Egypt in 1947, Sharif was reportedly sexually abused as a child, including being frequently sodomized by his father and other male relatives. In his early 20s, Sharif immigrated to the United States, landing first in New York City and then in New Hope, Pennsylvania. By 1981, he was living in Palm Beach, Florida, where he worked as a chemist and engineer. In May of that year, Sharif beat and repeatedly raped an unidentified 23-year-old woman. For those offenses, he received only probation. In August of the same year, he was charged with another rape. He was again convicted, but he served just 45 days. The next year, he was married briefly in Gainesville, Florida, until he beat his bride unconscious. She divorced him shortly after that. In March 1983, Sharif beat and repeatedly raped yet another victim. In January 1984, while awaiting sentencing, he managed to escape, but he was soon recaptured and, on January 31, sentenced to serve 12 years. Not quite six years later, in October 1989, Sharif was paroled. At that time, he was to be deported, but instead he was allowed, for unexplained reasons, to remain in the country. Sharif quickly found work in Midland, Texas at Benchmark Research and Technology. While employed and living in Texas, the thrice-convicted rapist was photographed shaking hands with Senator Phil Graham, in addition to being singled out for praise by the U.S. Department of Energy. In 1991, while still on parole, Sharif was arrested for drunk driving. He suffered no apparent repercussions for that offense. By 1993, he was once again facing charges of holding a woman captive and raping her repeatedly. In May of the following year, the state of Texas inexplicably agreed to drop all charges against the repeat offender if Sharif voluntarily left the country. He promptly moved to an exclusive residential neighborhood in Juarez and went to work at Benchmark's Macuiladera. In October 1995, Sharif was arrested by Mexican authorities and charged with rape. He was convicted and given a 30-year sentence, but the bodies of young women continued to pile up in and around Juarez. Next to be arrested were a gang of nightclub workers known as the Rebels, who were allegedly being paid by Sharif to continue the killings. The gang was led by Armendariz Diaz, also known as El Diablo. All members of the gang later claimed that they had been tortured by police to coerce their confessions. In early 1999, five members of another gang, the Toltecs, led by Jesus Guardado Marquez, also known as El Dracula, were arrested and accused of collaborating with Sharif. 
The gang confessed to 15 of the murders, but later recanted, claiming that torture by the police had produced the confessions. The arrests of the two gangs failed to slow the pace of the killings and disappearances. After the arrest of the Toltecs, the FBI sent some of its famed profilers to Juarez. Among them was Robert Ressler, who advanced the dubious theory that the murders were the work of Reyesendez Ramirez. The arrest of Ramirez in July 1999, however, had not put a stop to the killings. Before the year was out, more young women would go missing, more bodies would surface, and the mass graves at the ranch would be discovered. On November 6 and 7, 2001, eight bodies were discovered in a vacant lot just 300 yards from the headquarters of the Association of Maquiladoras. Confessions were quickly obtained from two bus drivers, Victor Javier Garcia and Gustavo Gonzalez Meza, also known as El Cerillo and La Foca. Following the pattern set with previous suspects, police reportedly obtained the confessions through the use of torture. The two men had visible burn marks on their bodies, marks that Oscar Menez Grijalva, the chief forensic investigator on the case, determined had been made with stun guns used by the police. Menez thoroughly searched a van that the bus drivers had purportedly used to abduct women, and he found no evidence to support the allegations. According to Menez, he was then asked to help plant evidence against two bus drivers who were charged with the murders. A couple of police officers brought us items for us to put in the van they said was used to abduct the women. Menez refused to take part in the framing of the suspects, and, in January 2002, he resigned in protest over the handling of the case. He has said that he now believes that some police are involved in the murders. The outspoken Menez has reported receiving death threats intended to silence him. Also in January 2002, Jorge Campos Murillo, a federal deputy attorney in Mexico City, told reporters that juniors, the sons of wealthy, powerful Mexican families, were connected to the killings. Campos was promptly transferred and he now refuses to discuss the Juarez case, which next landed in the lap of Irma Rodriguez Galarza. Rodriguez, daughter and husband were gunned down on the family's porch with AK-47 assault rifles. Campos is not alone in linking the Juarez murders to the sons of the rich and powerful. The UK's observer has reported that those involved in the killings come from prominent families that include landowners, major drug dealers, construction barons, energy suppliers, and officials in both government and the police. A spokeswoman for a victim's group noted that the killers take no trouble to cover up evidence, like most murders. With these, the evidence is brazen, right there, every time, the killers, in other words, have no fear of the police. The El Paso Times alleged that the guilty parties are prominent men who cross the border regularly, are involved in major businesses, are associates of drug cartels and have ties to politicians in President Vicente Fox's administration. According to some Mexican officials, six people from the Juarez-El Paso area are having the women abducted for orgies, after which or perhaps during which they are killed. On February 5, 2002, Mario Escobedo Jr., the attorney representing Gonzalez, one of the two truck drivers, was killed by police. Escobedo was reportedly pursued at night by police in unmarked vehicles until the attorney lost control of his car and crashed. He was then cut down in a hail of police gunfire. Escobedo's partner, Dante Almarez, reported that he was advised to drop the case or we'll kill you the same way we did Escobedo. In August 2002, PBS aired the documentary film, Senorita Extraviata, produced by Lords Portillo. The film revealed that some of the victims were missing for long periods before their deaths. Some of the, their bodies display evidence of ritual sacrifice. 
In many cases, the only remains that are ever found are clothes and bones, and the bones are often mismatched. Frequently these bones are found in far less time than it would take a corpse to be reduced to a skeleton. Sometimes these skeletal remains show up in areas that have just recently been searched. Juarez police have refused to investigate a number of viable leads and they have deliberately destroyed evidence, including more than 1,000 pounds of victims' clothing that was burned. One female witness, who was arrested and then raped in prison, told the filmmakers that her captors had showed her photos of a woman being gang-raped and beaten, and then doused in gasoline and burned alive. Some of the victims have indeed been burned alive. Others have been strangled, stabbed, bludgeoned and or shot. According to Americas, or, when they're not skeletal remains, most of the women's bodies are found in the nearby desert with evidence of torture and gang rape. Forensics evidence shows many are kept alive during this for days or longer. The bodies are usually mutilated, laid out in cross formation, and branded with signature carvings on various parts of their bodies. Some reports hold that many of the recovered bodies exhibit similar slashing wounds to the breasts. A March 2002 report in The Guardian claimed there are patterns of mutilation that have not been publicly released that could indicate narco-satanic rituals. In October 2002, the bodies of two more victims surfaced. Three months later, in January 2003, three more were discovered. Not long after that, on February 8, almost a year to the day after his attorney had been gunned down, Gustavo Gonzalez Meza died in custody following a relatively routine hernia operation. Both Gonzalez and his wife had reported receiving death threats. Just over a week after his death, four more bodies were discovered. Police refused to acknowledge one of the bodies, despite the fact that reporters and other witnesses viewed it. In May 2003, the Juarez murders, which had been almost entirely ignored by the Western media for a full decade, were suddenly in the news. A flurry of reports pitched the theory that the killings were the work of an organ trafficking ring, possibly with cult connections. New Zealand's One News reported that as many as 90 women may have been killed by the ring. Some of their organs, it was claimed, were brought to the states by an unidentified American. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution told of federal investigators looking into claims that some of the dozens of women slain in the border city of Ciudad Juarez over the last decade may have been killed for their internal organs. A Reuters report listed the following as possible motives for the murders, satanic rituals, organ trafficking and snuff movies where women are kidnapped, sexually assaulted and then murdered on camera. The Guardian spoke of evidence indicating the women may have been victims of an international organ trafficking ring. Police also were investigating the possibility that certain mutilations, breasts were cut off on a few of the victims, and some had scars cut in designs, might indicate the involvement of a religious cult. Skepticism of those theories, however, was expressed by Oscar Maynez, the former head of the Ciudad Juarez Forensics Office and one of the very few voices of conscience in this story. According to the Journal Constitution report, Maynez said he never saw any evidence of missing organs in the bodies he examined when he worked on the case. Whether accurate or not, the official proclamations and the accompanying news reports served to federalize the investigation of the Juarez murders for the first time. Before that, federal officials had steadfastly maintained that the killings were a state matter. It is unclear whether the federalization of the investigation represents a sincere effort to stop the killings, bring the responsible parties to justice and root out local corruption, or whether it is just a continuation of the cover-up. The latter seems far more likely. 
As of this writing, in April 2004, women continue to disappear and incongruous piles of bones continue to surface, while residents continue to discover evidence at crime scenes after police have declared that thorough searches have been conducted. Though there have been numerous arrests over the years, no one has been formally charged with any of the hundreds of unsolved homicides. Meanwhile, in February 2004, Mexican federal police arrested two drug cartel members who they said might have been involved in the mass murder of 12 people in a home in Juarez. Also detained were 13 state police officers suspected of complicity. In the city of the future, life is cheap and justice is for sale to the highest bidder. On the U.S. side of the border, in 1985, a ranch of a slightly different variety was uncovered in Kerrville, Texas, not far from Johnson City, Texas, the birthplace and childhood home of President Lyndon Baines Johnson. The ranch, run by a family of German immigrants, was found to be holding 75 human slaves, many of them acquired when they were young teenagers. The property was patrolled by armed guards who kept the slaves chained together and routinely tortured them by applying electric cattle prods to their tongues and genitals. Whenever one of the slaves was killed, the body was burned to dispose of the evidence. The Texas Rangers, who maintain a museum in Johnson City, eventually raided the property after routinely ignoring steady reports of strange happenings at the ranch. It took the state of Texas almost two full years to bring the case to trial. When it was all over with, the rancher and one of his sons received extraordinarily light sentences for their crimes, 15 years for one, and 14 for the other. Another indicted son was acquitted and walked away a free man. A media disinformation campaign portrayed the entire sordid affair as a trumped-up case, but investigative journalist Gordon Thomas noted that the trial transcript indicated that it was nothing of the sort. Thomas has also written of another ranch in Southern California that evidence collected from a variety of sources indicates caters to powerful pedophiles. The ranch is located immediately adjacent to one of the numerous U.S. military bases that pepper the southern half of the state. The property has a rather ominous history, having previously served as a concentration camp for Japanese Americans during World War II, and later as a deprogramming center for returning Korean War veterans who it was said had been brainwashed. According to witness statements, children from around the country have been abducted and transported to the covert location, never to be heard from again. Once there, they are held as slaves to feed the depraved desires of powerful, well-connected pedophiles who torture, abuse, and at times kill their young victims. One man who may have worked at the ranch, according to reports cited by Thomas, was serial killer Leonard Lake. Chapter 10, The Myth of the Serial Killer It's more of a shadow than anything else. You know it's a human being, but yet you can't accept it. The killin' itself, it's like say, you're walking down the road. Half of me will go this way and the other half goes that way. The right-hand side didn't know what the left-hand side was going to do. Henry Lee Lucas, describing how he perceived his victims before killing them. Most Americans are probably familiar with what is considered the classic serial killer profile. This was a notion first put forth by the venerable FBI, which coined the term serial killer and pioneered the concept of profiling in an alleged attempt to understand the phenomenon of mass murder. It appears to be the case though that the concept of the serial killer profile was put forth largely to misinform the public. In the case of Henry Lee Lucas, few if any of the elements of the serial killer profile apply. For instance, serial killers are said to act alone, driven to do so only by their own private demons. So far removed from ordinary human behavior are their actions that they would not, indeed could not, share their private passions with others. 
In Henry's case, this is a patently false notion. It has been officially acknowledged that Lucas worked with not just one, but at times as many as three accomplices. As previously noted, Tool's pre-teen niece and nephew were frequently brought along to witness, and at times participate in, the crimes of Henry and Otis. It is also claimed that serial killers target a particular type of victim, similar in age, gender, race, hairstyle, attractiveness, and other physical attributes. Again, in Henry's case, this simply does not fit the known facts. Henry's victims in fact had little, if anything, in common with one another. The victims' ages ranged from children to the elderly. Both genders and all races were also well represented. As Lucas himself once stated, they's been a mixed breed of people, as far as the killings themselves. It is further claimed that serial killers follow a readily identifiable modus operandi, with the means of obtaining victims and the trajectory of the crime following a well-defined pattern. Again, that was clearly not the case with Lucas, whose victims were obtained in a variety of ways, and who inflicted death by a variety of means, including bludgeoning, stabbing, strangulation, shooting, and suffocation. Some were killed in their homes, while others were abducted and taken to remote locations. Some were sexually abused, both before and after death, while others were not. Some were cannibalized. Some were left on display, for maximum impact upon their discovery, while others were left so as not to be discovered at all. In other ways as well, Henry Lee, the consummate serial killer, did not even come close to matching the profile of what he was supposed to be. Strangely enough though, perhaps the most remarkable aspect of the Henry Lee Lucas story is that it is not actually remarkable at all. In reviewing the case histories of more than two dozen other alleged serial killers, it becomes readily apparent that few, if any, fit the supposed profile. The victims of Reysendez Ramirez, for instance, ranged in age from 21 to 88 years, with a mix of males and females. The cause of death varied as well, with most being bludgeoned, though one was shot in the head, another stabbed, and yet another had a pickaxe buried in her head. Though not readily apparent, almost all of the weapons used for inflicting death, by both Lucas and Ramirez, had one thing in common, they are what are termed, weapons of opportunity. In other words, they are weapons that were acquired at the crime scene immediately before the murders were committed. Notably, this precisely mirrors the means by which the CIA has historically taught its assassins to kill. A CIA training manual entitled A Study of Assassination advises the would-be killer, the simplest local tools are often the most efficient means of assassination. A hammer, axe, wrench, screwdriver, fire poker, kitchen knife, lamp stand, or anything hard, heavy and handy will suffice. All such improvised weapons have the important advantage of availability and apparent innocence. The assassin may accidentally be searched before the act and should not carry an incriminating device if any sort of lethal weapon can be improvised at or near the site. This advice has been taken to heart by a good number of serial killers. The Mafia Assassination Service known as Murder, Inc., the brainchild of the Lansky-Luciano Syndicate, which had extensive connections to U.S. intelligence agencies, had a remarkably similar philosophy. As J. Robert Nash notes in Bloodletters and Bad Men, like most of Murder, Inc.'s assassins, Pittsburgh Phil never carried a weapon in case the local police picked him up on suspicion. He would cast about, once he had selected his murder spot, for any tool handy that would do the job. It should probably be noted here, while we're on the subject, that the man identified as Pittsburgh Phil, whose real name was Harry Strauss, was credited with killing at least 500 people in this manner from the late 1920s through 1940. This feat should put him at or near the top of any self-respecting serial killer list. 
Henry Lee recounts in The Hand of Death that his training by the Hand of Death cult followed the same time-honored tradition. Of course, the FBI assures us that satanic cults and satanic crime do not exist in modern-day America. To put this assertion in its proper context, however, it is important to remember that this is the very same FBI that, during the reign of murder, Inc., and for several decades thereafter, refused to acknowledge the existence of organized crime in America. It is also the same FBI that for years ignored and denied the resurgence of the Ku Klux Klan in the early part of the 20th century. The FBI, in other words, has a long history of denying the existence of indigenous groups devoted to terrorizing American society. Other than utilizing weapons of opportunity, the most common means by which professional assassins carry out their contracts is with a small caliber bullet fired at point-blank range to the head, typically with either a 22 or 25 caliber handgun. Inflicting such a wound is quick, efficient, relatively quiet, reasonably clean and, most importantly, highly lethal. Contrary to conventional wisdom, a small caliber round to the head is more often fatal than a larger caliber bullet because the smaller projectile has enough velocity to make the initial penetration into the dense skull bones, but not enough to make an exit wound. Once inside the brain cavity then, the slug will tend to ricochet around the curved inner bone surfaces, causing considerable damage to the brain in the process. A larger caliber round, on the other hand, is much more likely to penetrate clean through the skull, making much more of a mess, though doing less damage to the brain. The smaller weapon then, when fired from very close range, is a much more efficient killing device. Such weapons are also very easy to conceal and are the easiest weapons to silence. And even without a silencer, the report from a 22 automatic is relatively quiet especially to a generation raised on a steady diet of sensationalized and highly stylized violence in the media, where every gun sounds like a cannon, a small caliber gun report can easily be mistaken for any of a number of everyday big city sounds. There is another reason that these are often the weapons of choice for contract hits. Small caliber slugs, particularly those from a 22 caliber weapon, are virtually impossible to trace or to match up to any particular gun. Literally millions have. 22 caliber weapons are in homes all across the country, and it is far and away the most popular, mass-produced ammunition on the market. And a 22 caliber bullet that has punched through the skull and careened around the skull cavity is virtually guaranteed to be deformed to such an extent that a ballistics match will be impossible. Matching a flattened slug dug out of some victim's head to any particular gun then is something akin to finding the proverbial needle in the haystack. For this reason, and for those previously cited, a small caliber contact wound to the head, usually to the side of the head, has long been the mark of a professional assassin. It is a most remarkable fact then that the vast majority of the victims of the serial killers profiled herein were killed either by means of a weapon of opportunity or they were shot in the head with a small caliber weapon, execution style. And far more often than not, there is no specific type of victim that is targeted, nor is there a pattern as to how the killings are carried out. Take, for example, the other serial killing Ramirez, Los Angeles-famed Night Stalker. Most of the Night Stalker victims were killed with contact wounds from a small caliber handgun to the left side of the head while they slept. Both, 22 and 25 caliber weapons were used. The remaining victims were bludgeoned or stabbed to death with household items, including a hammer and a lamp vase. Some of the victims were mutilated to varying degrees, including two that were hacked with machetes. Others were subjected to electrical torture. Their ages ranged from young adults to a pair of octogenarians, with both men and women well represented. 
and there was certainly no discrimination shown as to the race, ethnicity of the victims. In what were dubbed the Sunset Strip Murders, also in Los Angeles, the victims were also dispatched with a 25 caliber contact wound to the head, except for one victim who was shot in the chest and sliced open. Two of the victims were also beheaded. One of the dead, who had likely been an accomplice, was male, with the rest females of various ethnicities. Santa Cruz's Herb Mullen must surely have been, if he was actually guilty of the murders attributed to him, the most creative serial killer in the annals of modern crime. The seemingly randomly assembled set of crimes credited to Mullen stands as perhaps the most ludicrous use of the term, serial killer, on record. The first victim was a homeless man beaten to death with a baseball bat, for no apparent reason, on a lonely stretch of road. The next was a girl who was repeatedly stabbed, then sliced open, mutilated, and generally made a mess of, in what most people would think of as a typical serial killing. The next five victims were all killed in a single night at two different residences, both occupied by known drug traffickers and their families. In one house, all three victims, two of whom were children, were shot once in the head with a 22 and then stabbed a few times for good measure. At the other home, a slightly less professional job was done. The two victims at that address, who were close friends of the victims at the other crime scene, were shot multiple times with a 22 in various parts of the body, and then stabbed. The next four victims were a group of teenage boys on a camping trip, who were each shot once in the head and multiple times in the body. Interestingly enough, the boys had their own 22 caliber rifle within arm's reach of where they were killed. All four were allegedly killed by a lone assailant before they could reach for the gun, despite the fact that Mullen would have had to reload his six-shot 22 automatic at least once to complete the slaughter. Following the mass execution of the teenagers, Mullen next allegedly decided to test his skills as a sniper, picking off an ex-boxer as the victim strolled across his front yard. In nearby Sacramento, California, Richard Chase got his sniper killing out of the way right off the bat. His first victim was dropped in front of his home with a 22 round fired from a parked car, just the way Mullen had allegedly done it. The rest of the Sacramento victims were killed with a 22 caliber contact wound to the left side of the head, sometimes followed by a second shot. Some were then mutilated. Ages ranged from 20 months to 51 years, with both males and females targeted. Chicago's Ripper Crew killed a string of women, both black and white, by a variety of means before then adding something new to the serial killer repertoire, a gang-style drive by shooting of known drug dealers. It is always good practice for any aspiring serial killer to throw at least one obvious drug hit into the mix. Charles Manson and Richard Ramirez understood that, as did various other serial killers, although such troublesome facts are routinely ignored in most press accounts, lest anyone catch on that serial killings are not necessarily random acts of violence. Consider, for example, the case of Charles Ng and Leonard Lake. At least a few of their known victims were deeply involved in drug trafficking. Other than that, the victims had little in common. Excavated from the pair's compound were the remains of seven men, five women, and two babies, though there were likely many more undiscovered victims. How the pair's victims were killed was impossible to determine, as was largely true of the cases of other killers who fall into the collector's category, including Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy, Bob Berdella, Gary Heidnick, and Herb Baumeister. In all these cases, all that remained of the unfortunate victims were various bones and, in some cases, genitalia, internal organs and slabs of flesh. It is within this group that the most consistency is shown in the targeting of victims. 
The known victims of Gacy, Berdella, Baumeister and Dahmer were all young men, frequently gay or bisexual men. Even so, there was not necessarily a specific victim profile in all these cases. Dahmer's victims, for instance, ranged in age from 14 to 31 and were of various races. Even in those cases where the alleged killer is given a catchy moniker that supposedly reflects a distinctive signature to the slains, there is rarely a consistent mode that is followed. The victims of the Boston Strangler, for instance, ranged in age from 19 to 75, were both black and white, and varied considerably in physical attractiveness. And they were not, contrary to popular mythology, all strangled in the same manner. In some cases, it was done manually, in others with ligatures acquired at the scene. In addition, some were stabbed, mutilated and or sexually assaulted as well. Most of them were left on display, though one was discreetly covered with a blanket. In the other strangler case, Los Angeles, Hillside Stranglers, victims ranged in age from 12 to 28 and varied considerably by height, weight, race, skin tone and hair color. In addition to strangulation, various other techniques were utilized, including electrocution, lethal injection and lethal gas, all methods improvised with materials at hand and, strangely enough, all methods used by the state to perform judicial executions. Though Edmund Kemper was dubbed the co-ed killer, his victims were definitely not all co-eds. Two of them were his grandparents, and another was his mother. Yet another was several years too young to be a co-ed. His victims were killed with a combination of point-blank bullet wounds to the head and stabbing, strangulation, suffocation and bludgeoning with weapons of opportunity. In the case of Ted Bundy, it is frequently claimed that all of his purported victims were remarkably similar in appearance. Many of the books chronicling Bundy's alleged exploits reinforce this notion by including a carefully selected set of photos of the slain women who did resemble one another to a limited degree. Overall though, the victims varied widely in height, weight, build, attractiveness, hair color and style, and various other physical attributes. As for the manner in which they were abducted and killed, that is largely a matter of speculation. Many were never found, and of those that were, frequently only the skull was recovered. In those cases where the cause of death could be determined, it was by means of weapons of opportunity. In the infamous attack at the Chi Omega sorority house, for instance, the crimes were committed with a club acquired immediately before entering the property. The Chi Omega bloodbath, by the way, was in marked contrast to Bundy's previous alleged crimes, which involved the abductions and killings of single victims. This crime instead seemed to borrow heavily from the rampage allegedly perpetrated by Richard Speck. Bundy's final alleged murder before his capture, the killing of a 12-year-old child, also did not match his supposed modus operandi. As for Richard Speck, he showed no consistency in the means by which his victims were killed, other than that all died from wounds inflicted with weapons improvised at the scene. Death came by way of various combinations of strangulation, stabbing, slashing of the throat, and breaking of the neck. And so it goes for virtually all serial killer cases. New York's Son of Sam targeted men and women of various ages. Arthur Shawcross, the Genesee River Killer, killed two young children, one a boy, along with a string of women of various ages. Most were strangled and or bludgeoned with weapons acquired at the scene, though one was drowned. Most were mutilated, cannibalized and sexually assaulted. The Gainesville Ripper, purportedly Danny Rowling, included one male among his five victims. All were stabbed and slashed to death, some were posed and one was beheaded. Finally, lest we forget, the Manson family's victims ranged in age from teenaged Stephen Parent to middle-aged Leno LaBianca and included both men and women killed with various weapons, including A.
22 caliber handgun. Clearly then there are any number of serial killer cases in which there is no defining modus operandi and in which the deceased don't fit any kind of specific victim profile. In fact, it is difficult to find a case study of any serial killer who does leave a distinct signature at each crime scene. And what of the notion of the serial killer as a lone predator? Was Henry and Otis partnership an aberration? Not at all. There are any number of serial killer cases where it is officially acknowledged that there was more than one perpetrator. The Manson family, of course, is probably the most well-known case of multiple perpetrator serial killing. Less well-known is the case of the Ripper Crew in Chicago in the early 1980s. Described by authorities as a four-man satanic cult, the Rippers, led by charismatic Robin Gecht, allegedly killed as many as 17 women in as many months. Then there is the case of Charles Ng. Though Ng was the only one to stand trial for the series of killings in Northern California, it is acknowledged that the crimes were committed with the assistance of Leonard Lake, who committed suicide upon his arrest. And evidence strongly suggests that there were others involved as well, most notably Lake's ex-wife. Many other serial killers have worked in pairs, including the Hillside Strangler team of Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono. Working the same Los Angeles area turf just one year after the Stranglers were stopped was the team of Roy Norris and Lawrence Pliers Bittaker. And a few years after they were caught, the team of Douglas Clark and Carol Bundy was working the very same L.A. streets committing a series of killings dubbed the Sunset Strip Murders. The year after they were caught, another serial killer took over the L.A. market, the notorious Night Stalker. Media coverage to the contrary, evidence in that case clearly pointed to multiple perpetrators. It also strongly suggested that some of the killings were contract hits. As implied earlier in this chapter, much the same can be said of the evidence in the Herb Mullen case. As will be seen as we take a more in-depth look at our illustrious roster of serial killers, evidence almost always indicates multiple assailants. With very few exceptions, that evidence is routinely ignored or rather improbably explained away by law enforcement authorities and those who chronicle the exploits of high-profile criminals. Maury Terry, as previously mentioned, has done an excellent job of arguing the case that the Son of Sam killings were carried out by multiple cult members, despite the media portrait of David Berkowitz as the proverbial lone killer. Susan Kelly has likewise done a great job of exposing the Boston Strangler killings as the work of several killers. Even before the release of Kelly's The Boston Stranglers, there had long been speculation that the killings were not the work of one man. Most of the officials involved in the investigation, in fact, never believed that a single killer was responsible. Of the eight members of the psychiatric panel convened to develop a profile, seven believed that there were at least two perpetrators. Even in those cases that seemed to come closest to matching the classic serial killer profile, such as the John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer cases, there is a compelling case to be made that there were others involved. That evidence will be examined in later chapters. First, we will look at the cases of two high-profile, alleged serial killers, mass murderers who were said to have acted alone. The first is a very recent case, that of Yosemite killer Carrie Stainer. The other dates all the way back to 1966, the year Richard Speck allegedly went berserk in a home filled with young nursing students in Chicago, becoming the first mass murderer of the television age. Chapter 11, Lone Nuts? I must have done it if everybody says I did. Richard Speck. The case of Carrie Stainer stands out, in a very crowded field, as one of the most bizarre serial killer cases on record. 
Though the crimes ultimately attributed to him were not committed until the early months of 1999, the strange saga of the Stainer family began long before that, though exactly how long before is not entirely clear. As a friend of Carey's told Esquire magazine, there's just something, you know, off with that whole family. Since as far back as 1972, there has been some serious weirdness going on in the Stainer house. On December 4th of that year, Carrie's younger brother Stephen was purportedly abducted by a male pedophile working with an accomplice who proceeded to hold him as a sex slave for more than seven years. His abductor was Ken Parnell, a Texas native who is said to have been extremely self-destructive as a child. He had reportedly damaged his eyes by staring into a bright light, attempted to pull his own teeth out, set numerous fires, and attempted suicide on a number of occasions. He had also, perhaps not surprisingly, spent a fair amount of time institutionalized in both prisons and mental hospitals, including spending much of his teen years in California juvenile lockups. Stainer was not his first victim. Parnell had previously been convicted in 1951 of kidnapping and sexually assaulting an eight-year-old boy. He was back in the streets by 1955, but then incarcerated again before year's end for a parole violation. He was soon released again, only to be convicted of armed robbery a few years later. For that crime, he served some seven years. Five years after his release from that prison term, Parnell met up with Stephen Stainer. It was not a chance meeting. As Parnell indicated to his accomplice, Irvin Murphy, Stainer had been selected prior to the time of his kidnapping. Following the abduction, Parnell and Stainer lived for a time in Yosemite, where Parnell worked at the Yosemite Lodge, which happened to be located just a few hundred yards from the home of Carrie and Stephen's grandfather, who was universally described as an exceptionally cruel man. Following their stay in Yosemite, Parnell and Stainer moved to Santa Rosa and then to Ukiah, from where Jim Jones People's Temple had recently departed for San Francisco, and where Michael Aquino would later be accused of child exploitation. In February 1980, Stainer escaped, which is to say that he broke free, to some extent, from Parnell's psychological control. There was nothing that physically prevented him from escaping at any time. When he did leave, it was prompted by his desire to spare five-year-old Timmy White, whom Parnell had just abducted on Valentine's Day, the fate that awaited him. Stainer brought White along with him on his escape and became something of a hero in the process. He returned to the Stainer home, though he was said to feel closer to the man who had sexually assaulted him for seven years than to his estranged family. The family reportedly never talked about his ordeal. As Carrie's friend remarked, it was like it never happened, like he was never kidnapped or anything. Strangely, the Stainer parents would not allow Stephen to get therapy to help deal with his shattered childhood. By the age of 16, he had dropped out of high school and moved out on his own. As for Parnell, described as an accomplished manipulator, he was charged with the kidnapping and false imprisonment of both Stainer and White, as well as with sexual molestation of Stephen. Investigators on the case discovered that Parnell had also molested a number of Stainer's friends. Stainer attended school under a name given to him by Parnell, and outwardly lived a normal life with his father. One of Stephen's friends reportedly served as Parnell's accomplice in the White abduction. Also discovered was that Parnell was fond of taking Polaroid photos of his captive sex slave, and possibly other victims as well. For unexplained reasons, his bail was set at just $20,000, which allowed him to walk free after posting a mere $2,000 bond. He was tried in separate proceedings for the crimes committed against White and Stainer. Parnell was convicted in both proceedings, but he received remarkably lenient sentences for his crimes. 
For the multitude of offenses he committed against Stephen Stainer, he received just a 20-month sentence. Things were relatively quiet in the Stainer home for the next nine years, until May 1989, when Stephen was thrust back into the limelight owing to the airing of a television movie about his case entitled, I Know My First Name is Stephen. The media's reopening of the case was followed just weeks later by the untimely demise of young Stephen Stainer, who was killed instantly when an unidentified car turned abruptly into the path of his speeding motorcycle. The car and its driver promptly disappeared. Stephen left behind a wife and two young kids. Parnell was by that time already out of prison and a free man once again, after serving just five years for his crimes, less time than Stephen Stainer had spent as his prisoner. The following year, Jesse Stainer, Carrie and Stephen's uncle, was found shot to death in his Merced home. Jesse, or as he was more commonly known, Jerry, was perhaps the family member closest to the alleged serial killer. In his youth, Carrie spent more time at Uncle Jerry's home than he did at his own, the two even lived together for a brief time. Jesse was killed with a shotgun blast to the head fired from his own gun, allegedly by an intruder he had surprised in his home. Following the two deaths, the Stainer family again managed to stay out of the news for nearly a decade, until Carrie, the Stainer son who hadn't been held for seven years as a mind-controlled sex slave, and who the Los Angeles Times described as a man who had been a passive and kind presence for 37 years, decided, for no apparent reason, to become a serial killer. That, anyway, is the official story. In the early morning hours of February 16, 1999, three women allegedly were abducted from their room at the Cedar Lodge, which lies just outside the West Gate to Yosemite National Park. Strangely, though, there was no indication that any abduction had taken place. There were damp towels in the bathroom, indicating that at least one of the three had showered. Other than that, the room was neat and orderly, with the beds made and the key left out. There was no blood and certainly no sign of a struggle. The three were scheduled to check out later that morning anyway, in order to catch a flight out that day, and it looked as though the women had simply decided to check out early in the morning without going to the front desk. Yen's son, father of Julie's son and husband of Carol's son, two of the three missing women, did not bother to report his wife and daughter missing when they failed to depart from their scheduled flight and also failed to contact him with an explanation for the scheduling change. In fact, Yen's son did not bother to report his wife and daughter missing until the next day, and only then after he had played a round of golf. All three of the missing women came from extremely wealthy families. The sons are a branch of the dynastic Carrington family, and the third woman, Julie Sun's friend, Silvina Peloso, was from a wealthy, well-connected family in Argentina. Perhaps that is why the FBI was immediately called in to assist in what was, in the beginning, a simple missing persons case. Just 10 days after the reported disappearances, the FBI announced that it was bringing in two profilers, despite the fact that there was not yet any hard evidence that the women had met with foul play. It was another three weeks before the women's car was found, yielding the unrecognizable remains of Carol's son and Silvina Peloso. Only then did it become a homicide case. The vehicle, which was over 100 miles from the alleged abduction site, was thoroughly and, by all appearances, quite professionally burned, obliterating all forensics evidence. So badly were the bodies burned that it was difficult to even determine their gender. They were found in the trunk of the car, which the FBI did not bother to open until the day after the car was found and identified, a rather odd fact considering that the back seat was burned away, leaving the remains visible to the hunter who discovered the vehicle. Carol's son's wallet rather incongruously turned up in Modesto, also over 100 miles from the abduction site, though in another direction. 
Julie Sun's nearly decapitated body was later found at yet another location, roughly midway between the Cedar Lodge and the location of the car and the other bodies. Julie's discovery was precipitated by the receipt of an anonymous, taunting letter sent to the FBI tipping them off to the whereabouts of the body. Due to the complexities of the crime, many investigators on the case assumed that multiple perpetrators were involved. During the course of the investigation, at least a dozen people were implicated in the murders, all of them were part of a drug trafficking network operating in the area. One of these was a man named, perhaps appropriately, Billy Joe Strange. Like Carrie Stainer, Billy Joe worked at the Cedar Lodge. Strange was the night cleanup man at the lodge's restaurant, above which lived handyman Carrie Stainer. Strange's girlfriend, another suspect, also worked at the lodge as a night clerk. Also implicated was a man named Daryl Stevens, who occasionally roomed with Strange and his girlfriend. Stevens had a lengthy arrest record, as did another suspect, Michael Larwick. Larwick's rap sheet included arrests for attempted manslaughter, rape, kidnapping, child stealing, assault with a deadly weapon, and various drug offenses. When police came to arrest Larwick, he led his would-be apprehenders on a high-speed chase in which one officer was shot before barricading himself in a house and initiating a 14-hour standoff. He was eventually driven out with tear gas. When he was brought to court for his arraignment, the courtroom doors were locked to the press and public. This was improbably claimed to have been an accidental oversight. Jeff Keeney, another suspect in the women's murders, also led officers on a car and foot chase, leaving a trail of drugs in his wake. His home was found to contain three portable methamphetamine labs. Larry Utley, a convicted sex offender and an associate of Michael Larwick, was also deeply involved in the meth trade, and quite possibly in the murders as well. Utley was also an associate of Eugene Earl, Rufus, Dykes, Larwick's half-brother and yet another suspect. Once in custody, Dykes claimed that Larwick had admitted to playing a role in the kidnappings. He also admitted that he had received from Larwick checks and jewelry that had belonged to the victims. A friend of Dykes acknowledged being asked to forge identification to access Carol Sun's bank account, and another friend admitted to having taken her wallet to Modesto. Dykes, whose ex-convict father was also implicated, agreed to take a polygraph examination, which seemed to confirm that he was being truthful about his involvement in the kidnappings, murders. His girlfriend admitted to investigators that Rufus had confided to her that he and another man had killed the trio by slitting their throats. Dykes himself ultimately confessed, first to helping transport the bodies, and then to the murders themselves. That he had transported at least one of the bodies was apparent from the fact that pink fibers found on Julie's corpse, probably from a blanket her body was wrapped in, matched fibers recovered from a jeep used by Dykes. These same fibers were also found on Dykes' jacket, in a truck owned by a friend of his, and in Michael Larwick's Corvette. Other fibers, which appeared to come from Sun's clothing, were also found in the suspect's vehicles. Though fiber evidence is inherently problematic, it should probably be noted here that several alleged serial killers have been convicted, and even condemned to die, on less substantial fiber evidence cases than the one assembled against this group of individuals. And the incriminating fibers certainly were not the only evidence that investigators had. Rachel Lou Campbell, an associate of both Dykes and Larwick, was discovered to have in her possession Carol Sun's checking account and ATM numbers. Investigators believed that she was likely the unidentified female who had twice called the bank in the week after the disappearances to inquire about the status of the account. 
Another woman testified before a grand jury that she had received a ring from Larwick that two members of the Carrington clan identified as having very likely belonged to Julie Sun with all of these suspects in jail on other unrelated charges and with the evidence against them continuing to mount, most investigators considered the case to be essentially solved. It was widely anticipated that indictments would be handed down soon. Media coverage of the case dropped off appreciably and police began directing their attention elsewhere. But then a most amazing thing happened. On July 21, 1999, Joa Armstrong, a naturalist living in Yosemite Park, was beheaded in a brutal murder case that brought the earlier triple slaying roaring back into the headlines. Other than geographic proximity, there was nothing linking the two cases. This time, there was only one victim, and she was not abducted. Her body was quickly and easily found and there was, allegedly at least, a clear evidence trail leading to a sole assailant, happy-go-lucky handyman Carrie Stainer. Armstrong's murder was immediately declared to be connected to the previous case, although it is anyone's guess how investigators came to that conclusion. On July 23, Stainer was questioned and then released. Almost immediately after his release, a warrant was issued for his arrest and a manhunt reportedly ensued. Stainer appears to have made little effort to flee or to conceal his identity, and he was arrested the next day, at the Laguna del Sol nudist colony, by three FBI agents and two sheriff's deputies. Waiving both his right to an attorney and to remain silent, he is said to have promptly launched into a full confession, reportedly in a detached, emotionless voice. Within a couple of days, Stainer had also given his confession to a television reporter. He took sole credit for all four murders. The reporter, Ted Rollins, promptly made the rounds of national news shows with his scoop and all the evidence implicating the drug trafficking ring was quickly forgotten. Apart from his confession, however, there was no evidence to support Stainer's claims. According to his version of events, Stainer single-handedly got the jump on the three women in their room and was able to bind them all with duct tape. He allegedly used a gun, although no gun has ever been produced and none of the victims were shot. Two of the women were purportedly killed in the room. All three were then carried out, one at a time, and loaded into their car. One was still very much alive and most likely resisting the efforts of her abductor. No one at the lodge saw or heard any of this activity. Stainer then allegedly cleaned up the hotel room in which the first two murders occurred, successfully removing all traces of a struggle. Stainer then drove for miles before stopping to kill the third victim, Julie Sund, and dump her body. He then supposedly drove many more miles to another remote location, which happened to be very near Michael Larwick's childhood home, and abandoned the car with the other two bodies still in the trunk. He then took a taxi back to Yosemite Valley, incurring a fare of $125. Two days later, he returned to the abandoned car in an unidentified vehicle, and at that time he set Carol's son's abandoned car afire, with the two bodies still inside. After that, he allegedly drove to Modesto to dump Sun's billfold, which for some bizarre reason he did not destroy with the rest of the evidence in the fire. Even with this rather convoluted story, authorities have not been able to explain away all of the incongruous evidence. For example, the taunting letter sent by the killer revealing the location of Julie's body was sealed with someone else's saliva. The FBI reluctantly acknowledged that DNA tests verified that fact. Spokesmen for the Bureau had an explanation, however, their theory was that Stainer had tricked an unsuspecting male into supplying the saliva to seal the envelope. How exactly that would be done was left to the imagination. Carey had initially given an alibi for the night of the murders, he said he had been visiting a female friend. The woman in question confirmed that fact. 
Then there is the rather troubling fact that evidence strongly indicates that the women were not killed that morning at the lodge, but later at an unknown location. That, needless to say, casts serious doubt on Carrie Stainer's confession. Any number of credible witnesses came forward, or at least attempted to come forward, to attest to the fact that the three were very much alive long after the time they were allegedly killed. A private investigator working on the case discovered credit card slips for purchases Carol made at the Yosemite Lodge, former employer of Ken Parnell, after she allegedly disappeared. Carol had signed for the purchases. Yosemite Valley's postmistress reported selling stamps to the trio on February 16, many hours after they had allegedly been kidnapped and killed. In Sierra Village, far away from the Cedar Lodge, and very close to where Carol's car was later found, at least three witnesses reported seeing the women that afternoon. A gas station owner remembered selling them gas, and a gift shop owner remembered them stopping in her place of business as well. Both of them attempted to contact the FBI. One failed to get through despite several attempts, and messages left by the other went unanswered. The Bureau later reluctantly acknowledged that there were several credible sightings of the women, not just on February 16th but on February 17th as well. When exactly the women disappeared remains largely a mystery, as does why the women changed plans, if indeed they did, without contacting friends or family. They were almost certainly not killed in the early morning hours of February 16th by Carrie Stainer or anyone else. One witness claimed that Julie was kept alive for several days, during which time she was held in a Modesto home and repeatedly raped. The relatives of a man found drowned in early April of 1999 claimed that the drowned man had witnessed the assaults on Sund in Modesto. There was never any question that the Sund-Peloso killings were the work of multiple assailants. As Nick Rossi of the FBI said early on, the assumption is that more than one person is involved. James Maddock, the FBI's lead investigator on the case, added that they were operating under the assumption this was a very difficult crime for one person to commit. Nevertheless, on September 6, 2000, Stainer and his defense attorney accepted the terms of a federal plea bargain agreement that had the unmistakable stench of a cover-up. Stainer professed his sole guilt in the death of Joie Armstrong and he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, though he was spared a death sentence. The guilty plea eliminated the need for a highly publicized trial, and the agreement contained a very unusual provision, after the entry of judgment in this case until his death he, Stainer, will not speak to anyone, write to anyone, or communicate to anyone about the death of Joie Ruth Armstrong, no one, in other words, will hear Stainer's side of the story. Ever. The federal courts were done with Stainer, but the state of California still had the option of prosecuting the triple murder. Two years later, it decided to exercise that option. This case until his death he, Stainer, will not speak to anyone, write to anyone, or communicate to anyone about the death of Joie Ruth Armstrong, no one, in other words, will hear Stainer's side of the story. Ever. The federal courts were done with Stainer, but the state of California still had the option of prosecuting the triple murder. Two years later, it decided to exercise that option. The state case was presided over by Judge Thomas Hastings, who had earlier reigned over the Richard Allen Davis, Polyclos case. Stainer was represented by Marsha Morrissey and Michael Burt, a San Francisco-based attorney whose clientele has included Richard Ramirez and Charles Ng. As the Los Angeles Times reported, this defense team conceded from the beginning that Stainer had killed the three tourists. That is not generally a very effective defense strategy, but it is one that is employed in a number of serial killer cases. 
The Times also noted that, while the case had at one time received massive press coverage, the criminal court fight has trundled on in front of scant spectators and only a handful of newspaper reporters. The trial consisted primarily of mental health professionals detailing for the jury Carrie Stainer's troubled childhood. These witnesses described a family tree littered with relatives who suffered from mental illnesses, including depression and pedophilia. They spoke of a family that considered displays of emotion to be taboo. They talked of Carrie, in his youth, being molested by his uncle. They discussed Carrie's fondness for child pornography, which he bartered with his FBI interrogators for in exchange for a full confession. They said that he had suffered from obsessive-compulsive disorder his whole life and had taken psychiatric drugs in the 1980s. And they said that Carrie Stainer suffered from uncontrollable violent impulses. If so, then only the four victims had ever seen that side of him. To everyone else, he seemed to be a gentle soul. A local nudist, naturalist, calling herself, Sunshine, told ABC's 2020 that she had known Carrie Stainer for years as a fellow free spirit. She spoke of frequently being alone with Stainer, skinny dipping in secluded spots along the Merced River. She could not recall him ever acting inappropriately, and never observed any hint that Stainer might be hiding a dark side. On August 26, 2002, the jury returned guilty verdicts on nine separate counts, including three of first-degree murder and one of kidnapping. They had deliberated less than six hours. On October 9, 2002, following the penalty phase of the trial, the jury returned with the recommendation that Carrie Stainer be put to death. They had again deliberated for less than six hours. Three months after the verdict was rendered, Ken Parnell was arrested in Berkeley, California after allegedly attempting to purchase a child. If the available evidence in the Stainer case leaves doubts about the sole guilt of the accused, that is all the more true in the case of the infamous Richard Speck. If veteran criminal investigators are puzzled as to how Stainer was able to subdue and control three women, then it truly boggles the mind how one man was able to single-handedly subdue nine women, bind them all, and then systematically kill all but one of them. According to the sole survivor, Cora Amaral, she answered the door in the early morning hours of July 14, 1966, allowing Speck entry into the house. She claimed he was brandishing a gun, though none of the victims were shot that night and no evidence was ever found indicating that a gun was used at the crime scene. Authorities claimed that Speck stole the gun from a rape victim on the very day of the slaughter, and then used it to quickly corral Amaral and five other women in the house into a room. He then proceeded to tear a sheet into strips, which he then used to tie the women up, one by one. How he was able to accomplish this while keeping all the rest at bay, and allegedly while keeping a knife in his hand at all times, is anyone's guess. Three more women arrived home after Speck's alleged entry into the house. All three were quickly bound and forced into the room with the others. Speck then allegedly began dragging the women off one at a time and slaughtering them, spending 20 minutes or more with each victim. After he finished with one, according to Amaral, he would go into the bathroom to wash up and then return for another. This scene played out over the course of some four and a half hours. During that time, the young women waiting their turn tried to hide under the beds, hoping to elude their assailant. They were, of course, found and killed. All of them, that is, except Cora Amaral, who claims that she alone avoided detection by Speck. It has been suggested that Speck lost count of his victims and falsely concluded that all the girls were dead, thereby making the crucial error of leaving behind a living witness. That part of the story is problematic in a number of ways. The first question raised is, why did the young women choose to remain in the room in which they had been herded? 
If, despite their bindings, they were able to move about within the room, which they clearly were or they would not have been able to get under the beds, then why would they not leave the room altogether? And once out of the room, why not get completely out of the house? And what was to prevent the women from untying each other? After all, the pattern was set early on, after the first couple of slayings, it had to be abundantly clear to the women that their lives were about to come to an abrupt end. For despite the claims that Speck cleaned himself up after each killing, it is ridiculous to suggest that Speck could have concealed the fresh blood that would have covered his clothes, assuming that he didn't bring eight changes of clothing with him. It also had to be quite clear to the awaiting victims that the selection of each new victim signaled that there would be a 20 to 30 minute window of opportunity to attempt an escape. And what was there to lose? It seems inconceivable that the women, facing certain death, would have passively awaited their fate. But what of the survivor's story? It should be quite clear to anyone that an adult simply cannot avoid detection by hiding underneath a bed. That was amply illustrated by the fact that all but one of those attempting to do so were discovered and yet one survived. How is it possible that Speck could have searched under the beds to locate the others, and yet failed to see Cora Amaral hiding there as well? And does it really seem likely that Speck was unable to count to nine? If not for the existence of the sole survivor, police investigators would have immediately assumed that multiple perpetrators were responsible for the mass carnage. No theorizing was necessary, however, since an eyewitness was on the scene to provide the unlikely, sole assailant scenario that was later refined to become the official story. Interestingly though, the composite drawing, a crude, two-dimensional rendering that was seriously lacking in detail of the suspect that was released by police, purportedly based on Amaral's description, did not resemble Richard Speck. Since the trial of the man fingered by police hinged primarily on Amaral's eyewitness testimony, and very little else, the star witness was zealously protected, although if the imprisoned Richard Speck was indeed the sole assailant, then it is difficult to see how the witness was in any danger. Amaral was moved to a resort where four guards were posted around the clock, and she was held there incommunicado for months while being prepped extensively for the testimony that she was to deliver. Before being hidden away, Amaral allegedly identified the suspect, albeit in a most unusual manner. While Speck in a hospital recovering from a failed suicide attempt, just days after the killings, Amaral was allegedly sent into his room, dressed as a nurse, to get a good look at the suspect. From this encounter, she positively identified Speck as the killer. Leaving aside the obvious fact that this was a brazenly illegitimate means of identifying a suspect, one which would have invalidated any subsequent attempts by Ms. Amaral to pick Speck out of a police lineup, the real question here is, what caliber of police official would send a severely traumatized crime victim, who just days before had witnessed the slaughter of eight of her friends and experienced the sheer terror of knowing that she could well be next, into a room, unprotected, to face the man who had put her through such torture? And what victim would be able to handle such an encounter, with the memories so fresh? And what guarantee was there that Speck would not recognize his accuser, given that hers was the first face he had seen as he entered the house that night? Amaral's dramatic identification of Speck was just a warm-up exercise for what was to come. When the time came for her to deliver her critical testimony to a packed courtroom, she delivered a bravura performance. Amaral recited an endlessly rehearsed version of the events of July 14th, and then, when the time came to identify the suspect in court, she played her trump card, rising from her seat, allegedly without any prompting or rehearsal, she calmly stepped out of the witness box, walked casually over to where Speck sat at the defense table, stood directly in front of him while looking him in the eye, and told the court, this is the man. That was the clincher, Speck was found guilty after just 49 minutes of jury deliberations and sentenced to death. 
There are indications though that this was hardly a foregone conclusion. Prosecutors clearly had doubts about their visibly shaky case, and they appear to have made every effort to stack the deck in the state's favor. One indication of that is the fact that the jury selection process was, as defense attorney James Graminos has noted, illegal and unfair. Graminos objected strenuously to the blatant violation of his client's due process rights, but was overruled. Another indication was the remarkable fact that, even though the case was moved some three hours outside of Chicago, the first time any trial had ever been moved out of Cook County due to pre-trial publicity, the judge opted to stay on in the new venue. That same judge slapped a gag order on the press, guaranteeing that no news would get back to Chicago, or to anywhere else in the country. Coupled with the blocking of any interviews with Amaral, this gag order shut the public out from learning the weakness of the case against Speck. City officials and the press had already assured everyone that he was guilty. Chicago's police commissioner had gone so far as to publicly declare Speck the killer even as he was releasing his photo to the media. Before even being arrested or formally charged with any crimes, Speck was already being presented to the public as a convicted mass murderer. And the public was hungry for a culprit to hang this heinous crime on. Never mind that the motive claimed by the state, robbery, was as ridiculous as it had been when claimed as the motive for the slaughter of the Clutter family in Kansas. Never mind that there are much easier ways to acquire $23.00 oh oh than by savagely murdering eight women with one's bare hands. Someone had to pay for this assault on society, regardless of why the crime was really perpetrated. Speck would do just fine. Many of the more thoughtful citizens of Chicago, however, are still waiting to learn what really happened in that house on that fateful night. The most likely explanation? The survivor and star witness was not actually a survivor at all, she was quite possibly an accomplice to a cult of individuals who perpetrated this slaughter. She could well have been the inside man, so to speak. And it was not likely an accident that she was left alive, it was essential that she remain alive to sell the single assailant scenario and thereby derail an investigation before it ever began. After all, authorities noted from the beginning that the house was not highly visible and immediately assumed that the killer was familiar with the surroundings. Speck did not have that familiarity, but Amaral certainly did. And it is a rather odd fact that Amaral admitted to being the one to let the killer or killers into the house. And what of Speck? He was likely little more than a patsy or fall guy who may have been involved to some extent in the killings, but he certainly was not the sole assailant. And he might not have been in the house at all that night. He had no memory of ever leaving the bar that he had been drinking in earlier that evening, but he did remember receiving an injection from a man he did not know. There is no question that Speck was drinking in a bar that night, a number of witnesses placed him there, though most were unsure of when Speck had left. Two of the witnesses though, a husband and wife, placed him at the bar during at least a portion of the time frame when the killings occurred. These witnesses were neither friends nor acquaintances of the accused and they had no known reason to provide Speck with a false alibi. It is possible that Richard Speck, like David Berkowitz and Pietro Pacciani, took the fall to protect others. That would certainly help explain the preposterously lax treatment of Speck during his confinement, as evidenced by that home videotape, produced circa 1988, that depicted Speck snorting huge piles of cocaine and flashing rolls of money, not to mention sporting a rather large and quite unattractive pair of breasts. No explanation has been forthcoming as to how it was possible for one of America's most notorious killers, while residing in what is reputedly one of the toughest prisons in the country, was able to obtain copious quantities of drugs and money, and gain access to video equipment and hormone treatments. It could be that Speck was rewarded in prison for being such a stand-up guy.
Speck had previously caught a number of breaks from the criminal justice system in his native Texas, where he grew up in the violently abusive home of his stepfather, named, strangely enough, Carl August Lindbergh. Just the year before the carnage in Chicago, he had been convicted of savagely attacking a girl with a knife and nearly killing her. Despite the seriousness of the crime, and despite having a lengthy police record that included 41 arrests in a dozen years, Speck served just five months. This act of judicial leniency was attributed to a bureaucratic error. Speck caught another break in 1972 when his death sentence was voided by the U.S. Supreme Court and he was resentenced to a term of 400 to 1,200 years, with the possibility of parole, which was still a pretty harsh sentence for a man who quite likely was, as he maintained for over a decade, innocent. Not long after producing his infamous videotape, Speck's luck ran out. At the relatively young age of 49, he died in prison, allegedly of a heart attack. A few years later, Cora Amaral made an appearance on The Oprah Winfrey Show to speak publicly about the killings for the first time in 27 years. Just days after Richard Speck, whose crudely tattooed arm declared him, born to raise hell, was arrested in Chicago, Charles Whitman, a former U.S. Marine sharpshooter who had received training by the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program, NESEP, an intelligence entity, ascended the tower at the University of Texas at Austin and unleashed a barrage of firepower on the unsuspecting campus. By the time it was over, Whitman and 14 others lay dead and another 31 victims were wounded. To ascend to his perch, Whitman purportedly dragged a heavy footlocker, loaded with three rifles, three handguns, a sawed-off shotgun, 700 rounds of ammunition, two knives, enough food and water to last for several days, gasoline, an alarm clock, a radio, a compass, a hammer, a hatchet, and various other items, up the final three flights of stairs, unnoticed and unassisted. Once there, his shooting spree lasted for more than an hour and a half. Firing with uncanny accuracy, he picked off 15 victims in the first 35 minutes alone, with shots coming at various times from all four sides of the clock tower. So many shots were pouring out of the sniper's nest at times that many witnesses on the ground assumed that there were multiple gunmen. The night before the rampage, Charles had killed his wife and his mother, although it was his violently abusive father for whom he was said to have had an intense hatred. Whitman had also left a note, which read in part, I don't quite understand what is compelling me to type this note. I have been to a psychiatrist. I have been having fears and violent impulses. Along with the note, he reportedly left a roll of exposed film with instructions to develop it after his death. Both of these mass murders, one in Chicago, Illinois and one in Austin, Texas, took place just weeks after Anton Lavey had formally established the Church of Satan and declared April 30, 1966 to be the first day of the Age of Satan. Whitman's rampage occurred on August 1, Lamas on the occult calendar. Just three weeks prior to Lavey's pronouncement, longtime CIA asset Henry Luce's venerable Time magazine had asked its readers the symbolic question, Is God dead? The face of a particularly brutal criminal enterprise, masquerading as a religion, was beginning to emerge from the shadows, and its effect on American society would be profound. As the New York Times observed 33 years later, on the occasion of the reopening of the tower's observation deck, the Whitman attack marked a new and different terror, that anyone anywhere could be killed at random. As the Times also noted, this new, and wholly manufactured, threat prompted many police departments to develop the first SWAT teams. America was under siege. Our goal was to create an atmosphere where there's lawlessness and disorder everywhere. David, son of Sam, Berkowitz. Chapter 12, Satan's Family Tree. 
The devil can get into people and cause them to do things they wouldn't do otherwise. Herbert Mullen, speaking to a Bible study class. In New York City in 1875, Madame Helena Petrovina Blavatsky founded the Theosophical Society, an occult-based group that survives to this day and that supplied much of the ideology of Hitler's Third Reich. Over the course of the next decade and a half, Blavatsky published Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, two literary works that have proven to be hugely influential with many succeeding generations of modern Satanists and white supremacists. As author Peter Lavenda has written, Levatsky popularized the notion of a spiritual struggle between various races and of the inherent superiority of the Aryan race, hypothetically the latest in the line of spiritual evolution. This belief in Aryan supremacy was echoed by philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, who during the same time frame posited the existence of an Aryan superman and advocated racial genocide. Nietzsche's work was also liberally borrowed from by the architects of Nazi Germany. One of Blavatsky's most devout followers was instrumental in introducing to Western Europe the infamous Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This notorious document, which more or less accurately identified the existence of an ultra-secret cabal bent on global domination and the subjugation of the world's people, identified this game plan as a grand Jewish conspiracy, thereby fueling the rabid anti-Semitism that served to stabilize the fascist states of Europe. Blavatsky also wrote of the importance of ancient alphabets, particularly what are referred to as runes. Many of these runes would later show up prominently in the symbolism of the Nazi party, including the SS lightning bolts and the swastika, which had been identified by Blavatsky as having supreme occult significance. With the founding of the Theosophical Society in 1875, Blavatsky was essentially being passed the torch by Abbe Alphonse Louis Constant, who died that same year. Better known in occult circles as Eliphas Levi, Constant was a French magician, author, and former priest who wrote a series of highly influential books from 1855 to 1865, Dogma and Ritual of High Magic, The History of Magic, and The Key of the Great Mysteries. One of Levi's disciples was General Albert Pike, Chief of Intelligence for the Confederate Army and the highest-ranking Freemason in North America. In 1867, Pike incorporated Levi's ideas into the constitution that he drafted for an overtly racist, occult-based secret society that he and an alliance of Confederate generals and intelligence operatives created following the American Civil War, the Ku Klux Klan. Levi's ideas would later find favor with the occult practitioners who engineered the rise of Nazi Germany. 1875 was also the year that a certain Edward Alexander Crowley was born. Edward, better known as Alistair, or by the grandiose label that he chose for himself, the Great Beast 666, was without question the most influential occultist of the 20th century. He was also an asset of British military intelligence, just as Albert Pike was an American intelligence operative, and just as Karl Kellner, Franz Hartmann and Theodore Roos had close ties to German intelligence entities. Hartmann, Roos and Kellner were the primary architects of the Ordo Templi Orientis OTO, a secret society formed in Germany around 1895 that claims to be in a direct line of descent from the Knights Templar, which some researchers believe to be the granddaddy of all the occult-based, secret Masonic societies. Whether or not there is any factual basis for that belief remains an open question, and one that is far beyond the scope of this book. What is known is that the OTO was directly linked to Blavatsky through Hartmann, a theosophist and close associate of the Madam. The Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn OGD, founded by theosophist William Westcott in 1888, was closely allied with Blavatsky's group as well. It was in the OGD, which he joined in 1898, that Aleister Crowley first attained occult celebrity status. 
he created his own occult order, which he named the Astrum Argentium, Silver Star, in 1907 and began publishing its newsletter, The Equinox, a couple years later. In 1912, he forged a close association with Theodore Roos, who introduced him to the OTO and appointed Crowley to head the order's UK chapter. That same year, Crowley penned an OTO manifesto that included a list of those he claimed to be past Grand Masters of the Lodge. On that list were composer Richard Wagner and an associate of his, Friedrich Nietzsche, whose published works included The Antichrist. In 1919, Crowley declared that every non-member of the occult order should be treated as a savage. Around that same time, he became known for his published works of pro-German and pro-Nazi propaganda, which he continued to produce through both world wars. While living in the U.S., Crowley wrote for two pro-fascist rags, The Fatherland and The Internationalist. Around 1920, Crowley moved to Sicily where he founded the Thelema Abbey, a site that quickly became known for conducting satanic rites, complete with animal sacrifices, bestiality, and blood drinking. The abbey also gained notoriety for being fraught with death and disease. Crowley's own infant child died there, as did others. At the time, Crowley was openly accused of infanticide, and he never denied the charges. To the contrary, Crowley openly and rather flamboyantly reveled in his depravity. In Diary of a Dope Fiend, Crowley was a lifelong abuser of drugs of all types, he wrote that, I have driven myself to delight in dirty and disgusting debauches, and to devour human excrement and human flesh. Those close to Crowley had the rather disturbing habit of dropping dead under unusual circumstances. As Gary Valentine Lackman has written, a study of Crowley's life and that of his disciples shows that many of them ended up mad, destitute or prematurely dead, occasionally all three. From early in his life, Crowley developed an unsavory reputation for killing his mountain climbing partners, a number of whom failed to make it home from their joint expeditions. In his native England, he was widely rumored to routinely sacrifice children and dump their mutilated remains in the Thames River. In one notable incident, Crowley and an assistant entered a locked room to perform a ritual, the assistant did not make it out alive. Immediately following that escapade, Crowley reportedly spent four months in a mental hospital. Crowley's offspring did not fare much better than his climbing partners did. In addition to the child that died at Thelema Abbey, the young daughter of his died in 1906, and some reports claim that a son died as well, in a separate incident. The Great Beast himself died on December 1, 1947. He was at the time the worldwide head of the Ordo Templi Orientis, having been named by Rus as his successor in 1923 and confirmed in 1924, though some reports hold that Crowley appointed himself to the leadership position as early as 1922. With his passing, a new generation of occult superstars stood ready to take the torch, each of them devoted to spreading the word of the Great Beast, Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. One of these disciples was Gerald Gardner, who replaced Crowley as the UK's most famous occultist. Gardner was born in 1884 into an affluent family in the UK, and he served for a time as a British customs agent. He was also the head of his own OTO lodge and a close associate of Crowley. Before his death, Crowley helped Gardner craft new rituals for what would become known as Wicca in 1949. Two years after his mentor's death, Gardner penned High Magic's Aid. He followed that with Witchcraft Today, 1954, and the meaning of Witchcraft, 1959, and the movement was off and running. More recently, Sir Lawrence Gardner, Gerald's son, penned a couple of books that attempt to justify genocide and Aryan supremacy.
Lawrence Gardner also serves as the presidential attaché to the European Council of Princes, an entity that has admitted to receiving funding from the Central Intelligence Agency. One of the senior Gardner's early recruits was Alexander Saunders, who was raised by a grandmother who was well-versed in the black arts. As a child, Saunders was shipped off for a time to live with and be trained by Crowley himself. By the late 1960s, Saunders was a national celebrity in his native UK, having anointed himself the King of the Witches. During the filming of Eye of the Devil in 1967, Saunders claimed to have initiated the film's star, Manson victim Sharon Tate, into witchcraft. His followers are said to practice Alexandrian witchcraft, while followers of Gardner practice Gardnerian witchcraft, both owe much to the teachings of Aleister Crowley. Saunders' counterpart in America was the equally flamboyant Anton Zunder Labby, who achieved minor celebrity status in the 1960s and 1970s as the clown prince of Satanism. Lavi's profile was first raised by San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herb Cain, who frequently provided free publicity. Cosmopolitan, Life, Look, McCall's, and the Phil Donahue and Johnny Carson shows also helped to steer recruits Lavi's way. Lavi claimed to have a lengthy and very colorful resume. He had worked, he said, as a lion tamer with the Clyde Beatty Circus and as a fortune teller and astrologer in a carnival. He had worked with an uncle in Las Vegas who was a close associate of Bugsy Siegel and Meyer Lansky, both of whom he had met. He had studied criminology and worked as a crime scene photographer for the San Francisco Police Department, who consulted with him on nutcases. He had been a professional hypnotist, organist and ghostbuster. He had been a paramour and Svengali of a young and then unknown Marilyn Monroe. It is unclear how much of this resume is accurate. Following Lavi's death, his daughter claimed that his entire life story was a fabrication, which would hardly be surprising if Lavi was, as he appears to have been, an intelligence operative. Together with Crowley-inspired filmmaker Kenneth Anger, Lavi organized the Magic Circle in San Francisco in the mid-1960s. By 1966, the group had evolved into the Church of Satan. From its inception, Lavi's group included an inordinate number of police, military and intelligence personnel. One of these was Lieutenant Colonel Michael Aquino, who left Lavi's circle in 1975 to found his own overtly satanic order, the Temple of Set. Before his departure, Aquino had been the highest-ranking member of the Church of Satan other than Lavi. He had joined the Church of Satan upon his return from Vietnam, where he served as a psychological warfare specialist, which very likely means that he served as part of the Phoenix program. Aquino returned from Vietnam with a Bronze Star, an Air Medal and an Army Commendation Medal. The colonel, who reportedly began reporting directly to the Joint Chiefs of Staff in 1981, is not the only intelligence asset in the Temple of Set, according to a police intelligence report cited by Carl Raschke in 1990, at least two of Aquino's top lieutenants at that time were intelligence operatives as well. Although Aquino denies it, his group embraces an unabashedly fascistic ideology. The reading list that he provides to his followers includes a number of pro-Nazi books, including Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Aquino advises members to look therein for the discussions concerning the selection of leaders, control of the masses, and the justification for human social organization. Aquino's admiration for the Third Reich was also illustrated by his visit to Wewelsburg Castle to perform a satanic working. During the reign of the Nazi party, Wewelsburg had been lavishly restored by Heinrich Himmler to serve as the headquarters of the Black Order of the SS, as such, it is considered sacred ground by some modern Satanists. 
Aquino has been known to claim that he is the son of an SS officer, although at other times he has claimed that he is a homunculus, magically created by the Babylon working, performed by Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard. After the temple was incorporated in the state of California as a non-profit church, Aquino's group quickly received both state and federal recognition, as well as tax-exempt status. The temple's members like to boast of being the only satanic church to hold such credentials. There have been claims made that, like Aquino, Lavi also had a fondness for the Third Reich. Some reports hold that Lavi secretly forged an alliance with the National Renaissance Party, an overtly racist, neo-Nazi organization. Such claims are not difficult to believe, given that Lavi's writings reveal an ideology that can best be characterized as fascism cloaked in quasi-religious dogma. His best-known work, The Satanic Bible, contains a dedication to Karl Hauschofer, one of the occult architects of the Third Reich. According to some reports, Hauschofer dictated virtually verbatim an entire chapter of Mein Kampf, although legend holds that the tome was dictated to Rudolf Hess by an imprisoned Adolf Hitler. Hess was, it should probably be noted, a member of the Thule Gesellschaft, a powerful occult society behind the rise of fascism, and had been a student and protege of Hauschofer at the University of Munich. Lavi's prolific writings are filled with pro-police and pro-authoritarian propaganda, unabashed elitism, and calls for the destruction of the weak by the straw, calls that echo Crowley's writings in Book of the Law, we have nothing with the outcast and unfit, let them die in their misery. For they feel not. Compassion is the vice of kings, stamp down the wretched and the weak, this is the law of the strong. The Church of Satan's promotional literature has proudly proclaimed the Church of Satan to be an eclectic body that traces its origins to many sources, including the ritual magic of Aleister Crowley and the Black Order of Germany in the 1920s and 1930s. Readers are reminded that the Black Order was the elite branch of the Schutzstaffel SS that was primarily responsible for engineering countless crimes against humanity during the reign of the Reich. In The Black Flame, an official publication of the Church of Satan, Lavi once wrote, if a neo-fascist look, or outlook, makes for men who look like men and women who look like women, I am all for it. He also offered the following observation, there is nothing inherently wrong with fascism, given the nature and needs of the average citizen, now it's not so much a case of avoiding fascism, but of replacing a screwed up, disjointed, fragmented and stupefying kind of fascism with one that is more sensible and truly progressive. Peter Gilmore, a ranking member of the Church of Satan, has described modern Satanism as practiced by Lavi's group as a brutal religion of elitism and social Darwinism that seeks to re-establish the reign of the able over the idiotic, of swift justice over injustice, and for a wholesale rejection of egalitarianism as a myth that has crippled the advancement of the human species for the last 2,000 years. Gilmore has also advocated the institution of an American Schutzstaffel. The Temple of Set is only one of several groups that have been spawned from Lavi's inner circle. Another is the Werewolf Order, co-founded by Lavi's daughter Zena and Manson admirer Nicholas Schreck. That particular spin-off was patterned directly after the so-called Werewolf Corps, Nazi terrorist cells created in post-war Germany to thwart attempts at denazification. Zena Lavi and Nicholas Schreck are also notable for hosting, along with publisher Adam Parfrey, a public gathering on August 8, 1988 that was organized to celebrate the anniversary of the slaughter of Sharon Tate by the Manson family. Another disciple of Crowley, and an occult superstar in his own right, was rocket fuel scientist Jack Parsons. In 1939, Parsons joined the Agape Lodge of the OTO in Pasadena, California, where he also helped found the prestigious Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The Agape was the only OTO lodge in the States at that time, though there was an active lodge in Vancouver started by Charles Stansfield Jones. 
1942, Parsons took the magical name of Freighter 210 and assumed leadership of the Pasadena Lodge with the blessings of Crowley. Parsons led the branch of the German-based pro-Nazi order throughout the war years, while at the same time working on highly classified military projects purportedly aimed at defeating the European fascist powers. One of his early recruits and most avid disciples had just served with the U.S. Navy in the Pacific and was the son of a naval commander. Calling himself Freighter H, he claimed at various times to work for the Los Angeles Police Department, the FBI, and the Office of Naval Intelligence. In truth, he may very well have worked for all of them. Freighter H, perhaps better known as L. Ron Hubbard, soon became Parsons' right-hand man. In 1946, the two adepts performed an allegedly important ritual that they dubbed the Babylon Working. Two years later, following the death of mentor Crowley, Parsons took the oath of the Antichrist and took on an elaborate new name, Bellarian Armalus al-Dajjal Antichrist. His Pasadena mansion served as the Lodge's temple. Leadership of the OTO had, for the time being, been passed by Crowley into the hands of Karl Germer, a former Nazi spy. Hubbard, meanwhile, parted ways with Parsons and by 1950 had launched the Hubbard Dianetics Research Foundation in New Jersey. In May 1950, Astounding Science Fiction, a pulp magazine, introduced Dianetics as a purportedly new science. Within weeks, Hubbard's book had hit the bestseller lists. In 1952, he moved his operation to Phoenix and renamed it the Hubbard Association of Scientologists. In June of that same year, just two days short of the summer solstice, Parsons allegedly blew himself up while at work in his private home lab. When informed of her son's death, his mother promptly committed suicide. Rumors surrounding Parsons' death named L. Ron Hubbard, Howard Hughes and Randolph Hearst as possible suspects. In 1953, the Church of Scientology was formally incorporated in Los Angeles. The group grew quickly over the succeeding years, particularly in the late 1960s, when membership quadrupled with the addition of such members as Charles Manson. By 1967, Hubbard's empire included command of a fleet of ships. Though the Church of Scientology has worked hard to gloss over its occult roots, its founder's own son, L. Ron Hubbard Jr., has been quoted as saying, Hitler was involved in the same black magic and the same occult practices that my father was. The identical ones, my father, thought of himself as the Beast 666 incarnate. When Crowley died in 1947 my father then decided that he should wear the cloak of the Beast. There seems to have been a lot of that going around. L. Ron Jr. has also said that the one super-secret sentence that Scientology is built on is, do as thou wilt. In the early 1960s, two ranking members of the Church of Scientology, Robert Moore and Mary Ann McLean, better known as the de Grimstons, split off from London's Hubbard Institute to form the Process Church of the Final Judgment, a group whose official logo is a modified swastika and whose literature included glowing tributes to Nazism, Satan, gore and necrophilia. The group's bookstore reportedly stocked titles on topics such as Hitler, organized crime, hypnosis, brainwashing, and the occult. Moore, a former cavalry officer and the grandson of a British vicar, and McLean, a one-time prostitute who was connected to the Profumo scandal and who reportedly believes that she is the reincarnation of Nazi propagandist Joseph Goebbels, first left London with their followers just after the summer solstice of 1966, arriving first in Nassau and then in XTUL, Mexico. They were soon back in London. By 1967, they had arrived in the States, first setting up shop in New Orleans' French Quarter, where the organization was formally incorporated with the assistance of a former lawyer for the Catholic Church. 
In March 1968, the group moved their base of operations to San Francisco, taking up residence not far from Lavi's Church of Satan and various other occult groups, including a branch of the OTO. Recruiters for the group had been in the Bay Area since the 1967 Summer of Love, signing on such members as Brother Ely, a member of the Gypsy Jokers biker gang whose home, Process Church Temple, was located just two blocks away from the home of the Manson family. From its inception, the process made no effort to hide its infatuation with death, destruction and cultural terrorism. In the essay Jehovah on War, Moore commanded his followers, Thou shalt kill. Another essay that appeared in the official process publication urged readers to experience the pleasures of grave robbing and necrophilia. A rant in the death issue was penned by a recent transplant to the Bay Area by the name of Charles Manson. Also by 1967, the process had already spawned at least one spin-off, probably from the group's inner circle, reportedly known as the Omega. The spin-off has been variously referred to as the 4P movement, the 4Pi cult, or the Chingan cult. The group's logo is a stylized swastika composed of four Ps. Its members are said to share a fascination with Nazi racist doctrines. Author Michael Newton has written, if law enforcement spokesmen are correct, the cult is also deeply involved in white slavery, child pornography, and the international narcotics trade. The first branch of the cult was organized in Northern California and is said to have held its early gatherings in the Santa Cruz Mountains, adjacent to that boiling cauldron of satanic activity known as San Francisco. From this primordial stew would arise, in the late 60s, the Manson family. Much of Manson's ideology was taken directly from the teachings of the Process Church, with whom Charlie was closely connected, as alluded to by Bugliosi in Helter Skelter and greatly elaborated on by Ed Sanders in The Family and Maury Terry in The Ultimate Evil. Manson was exposed to the process as early as the spring of 1967 at San Francisco's infamous Devil House, and he later claimed to have met the leaders of the process at the Polanski home, which he is known to have visited before the killings. Manson was also linked to the Church of Satan, the Solar Lodge of the OTO, which operated from a ranch near Blythe and a cult-owned house near the University of Southern California campus. The Church of Scientology, Charlie declared himself to be a Theta Clear after 150 hours of auditing while in prison, a particularly bizarre group known as the Kirke Order of the Dog Blood, and a number of occult-oriented biker gangs, including the Straight Satans, who once attended a Ku Klux Klan rally in the San Fernando Valley, the Satan Slaves, the Gypsy Jokers, the Jokers Out of Hell, and the Coffin Maker. Terry's evidence indicates that the family was itself a satanic cult, specifically a faction of the process spawned four pie cult and a sister group to both the New York chapter said to be responsible for the son of Sam Slains and the Santa Cruz, San Francisco faction that may have been responsible for the Zodiac murders. The Manson family, appropriately enough, was also deeply involved in drug trafficking, just as Henry Lee Lucas claimed his cult to be. It is not likely a coincidence that Henry's partner, Otis Toole, was known to have paid visits to the New Orleans headquarters of the Process Church. With all that in mind, we now turn our attention to the San Francisco, Santa Cruz area and the explosion of violent murders that belched forth from that cauldron beginning in the late 1960s. Satan as a Fascist, title of an April 1972 article by Donald Nugent in the month that referred to the unholy trinity of Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, and Anton Lavey. Inasmuch as fascism stands for an embracing of the natural order and a rejection of anything-goes attitudes that have hindered our society, particularly since the 1960s, then fascists we are. Church of Satan Magister Peter Gilmore, in The Black Flame, Volume 4, Number 1 and 2. 
Chapter 13, The Spawning Ground Otis Tool, I've been meaning to ask you, that time when I cooked some of these people? Why'd I do that? Henry Lee Lucas, I think it was just the hands doing it. I know a lot of things we done, in human sight, are impossible to believe. Tool, when we took him out and cut him up, remember one time I said I wanted me some ribs? Did that make me a cannibal? Lucas, you wasn't a cannibal. It's the force of the devil, something forced on us that we can't change. There's no reason denying what we become. We know what we are. On March 21, 1967, the spring equinox, Charles Mills Manson was released from prison and given transport to San Francisco, where, despite having served virtually his entire adult life in prison, he immediately started gathering devoted followers, many recruited from the various satanic groups blossoming in the area. In the spring of the following year, 1968, Manson loaded his new followers into a bus and took them on the road, ultimately settling into the Los Angeles area where Charlie quickly and improbably established numerous prominent contacts in the entertainment industry. As Neil Young, who knew Charlie and his girls well and once tried to get the head of Warner Brothers to sign the aspiring singer-songwriter, once told an interviewer, a lot of pretty well-known musicians around LA knew him, though they'd probably deny it now. On December 20, 1968, just shy of the winter solstice, what was thought to be the first of the Zodiac murders rocked the San Francisco area when a man was shot once in the head at point-blank range with a 22 and his female companion was shot multiple times with the same weapon. A detective working the case noted that the male victim had recently learned of a major drug deal that was about to go down, and he had been talking openly about who was involved in the transaction. It would later be speculated that the Zodiac killings actually began in the Los Angeles area on the eve of Halloween, 1966, just a few months after the rampages of Richard Speck and Charles Whitman. The victim, Sherry Jo Bates, had been stabbed in the chest and her throat had been slit so deeply that she was nearly decapitated. A wristwatch of military origin had been found at the crime scene, along with a military-style heel print. The circumstances of the murder suggested that the female victim knew her killer and had spent a portion of the evening with him before the attack. What was said to be a confession was received in the mail and, on Walpurgisnacht of 1967, taunting letters were sent to area newspapers and to the victim's father. The FBI would later inadvertently reveal that it had an alternate version of the confession, featuring the exact same wording but set in a different typescript and with a different number of words per line. On Independence Day, 1969, another couple was gunned down in their car, this time with a 9mm semi-automatic. The woman, Darlene Farron, who appeared to be the primary target of the attack, the man survived his wounds, may have known the previous Zodiac victims. She had reportedly told her friends that she had witnessed a murder by a man who had subsequently been following her. In the weeks before her death, she had been receiving mysterious packages from a man living in Mexico who Darlene had, for unexplained reasons, married in 1966 using an assumed name and then later divorced. Her companion on the night of the murder, Michael Majot, left his home in such a hurry that the lights and TV were left on and the front door was left open. He later told investigators that he and Darlene were followed immediately upon leaving Farron's house. After changing his story several times, Majot went into hiding. Shortly after the shootings, police received a call from a man claiming credit for Farron's murder. The call was placed from a payphone just outside the sheriff's station. At the end of July, the first of what proved to be a long series of letters arrived at area newspaper offices with a request that the letter be published on August 1st, the occult holiday known as Lamas. 
The series of letters were laced with codes that suggested that the writer had a background in naval intelligence, bringing the ONI Office of Naval Intelligence onto the case. Others agencies that investigated the Zodiac killings included the FBI, the U.S. Postal Service, the California Department of Justice, and four local police agencies. On August 4, 1969, the killer supplied his moniker in a letter that began, This is the Zodiac speaking. Just days later, on the nights of August 8 and 9, the Manson family committed two of the most notorious multiple murders in the nation's history, the Tate LaBianca slayings. The Manson killings were part of a weekend orgy of violence in Los Angeles that saw the city record 29 known homicides in just four days. Before the search for the perpetrators of the high-profile murders was over, it would involve the FBI, the Mossad, the California Beverage Control Board, the U.S. Treasury Department, the L.A. County District Attorney's Office, the LAPD, the L.A. Sheriff's Office, and Colonel Paul Tate, a U.S. Army intelligence asset, Vietnam veteran, and the father of victim Sharon Tate. Also brought in by Roman Polanski to assist in his own investigation of the killings was famed psychic Peter Herkos. Herkos had earlier made a high-profile appearance alongside of F. Lee Bailey in the Boston Strangler case, which will be covered in a later chapter. At the time of the Manson murders, Herkos was involved in organizing a black arts festival scheduled for Halloween Day, 1969. The event's other organizers were Timothy Leary and Anton Lavi, who were scheduled to host the festival before it was canceled. The month after the Tate-LaBianca killings, and just after the autumnal equinox, a man and woman were stabbed multiple times in a San Francisco-area park. Despite the fact that it took nearly an hour for an ambulance to respond to a call as the pair lay bleeding, the man survived the attack. In what has to be the only known case of a serial killer showing up for work dressed in a logo-bearing costume, the assailant was described as wearing a strange hood with an attached apron that prominently displayed the trademark symbol of the Zodiac. The attacker reportedly had a gun, but chose instead to use a knife, breaking from the previous pattern and likely contributing to the survival of the male victim. Prints from a military-issue boot distributed primarily to U.S. naval bases on the West Coast were found at the scene. The professed killer again called police, again from a payphone near the local police station. He reportedly left a clear palm print on the phone, but a nervous technician reportedly destroyed it. On October 11, 1969, one day shy of the birthday of Aleister Crowley, a taxi driver was shot once in the head with a 9mm handgun, although it was a different 9mm than had been used previously by the Zodiac. At four San Francisco area crime scenes, the Zodiac had now used a different weapon at each. The latest victim had picked up his fare on Mason Street and had then driven him to an address in the Presidio Heights area of the city, where he was promptly shot. Some local kids witnessed the murder and immediately called the police with a description of the assailant. For unexplained reasons, however, the police dispatcher broadcast a description of a black perpetrator, allowing the real shooter to evade a massive police response. Two days later, a new letter from the Zodiac claimed credit for the killing and threatened a future attack on a school bus. On October 22, a man identifying himself as the Zodiac called authorities and requested to speak, strangely enough, to either F. Lee Bailey or San Francisco attorney Melvin Belly. A spectacle then played out in which the man, calling himself Sam, called and had a live chat on the air with the CIA link Belly. In November, another letter arrived from the elusive Zodiac, this one containing a bomb threat. Also in November 1969, two Scientologists were found savagely murdered on the streets of Los Angeles. Each had been stabbed more than 50 times.
One of the victims had dated Manson disciple Bruce Davis in 1968, just before Charlie had sent Davis to London to visit both the headquarters of the Process Church and the local Scientology school. Davis was later convicted of other, unrelated murder charges, and he has been identified by some researchers as a possible suspect in the Zodiac killings. Another Zodiac letter, addressed to Belly, was sent on December 20th, just shy of the winter solstice. On April 20th, 1970, yet another letter was sent, it was followed by a dragon card on April 28th. The next day, on the eve of Walpurgisnacht, the Zodiac's bomb threat was revealed to the public, ratcheting up the already high level of fear in the Bay Area. Interestingly, one of the Zodiac's numerous letters contained a coded reference to the locations of the killings. A decoding suggested that the crime scenes formed a pattern that centered on Mount Diablo, the Devil's Mountain, and that utilized an obscure unit of measurement known as a radian, which is a mathematical unit based on the number pi. Elsewhere in the country, a man named Stanley Baker was convicted in July 1970 for the murder of a Montana resident. Baker made a candid admission to his arresting officers, I have a problem. I am a cannibal. As proof, he produced from his pocket a well-gnawed human finger. Baker was the talkative sort and he readily confessed his involvement in a number of other murders that he claimed he had committed as a member of the process spawned for Pi cult. Police were able to confirm his complicity in a particularly brutal mutilation murder in San Francisco, thanks to his having left behind a bloody fingerprint. California courts nevertheless declined to prosecute Baker for the homicide with the remarkable claim that he had been denied a speedy trial. Despite his confessed involvement in a number of murders, and despite the fact that the murder for which he was convicted involved him ripping out the man's heart and eating it, Baker was released from prison after just 14 years, and according to recent reports, he remains at large today. This in spite of the fact that he distinguished himself as something less than a model prisoner during his incarceration by starting his own satanic cult and having no fewer than 11 weapons confiscated by guards. Just as Stanley Baker and Charlie Manson had migrated away from San Francisco, so too did many other disenchanted hippies and flower children move on in the late 1960s and early 1970s. Many of them found refuge in the hundreds of square miles of sparsely settled wilderness offered by the Santa Cruz Mountains, where the abundance of rich soil and clear, running water provided ideal conditions for communal living and marijuana cultivation. By 1972, some 17,000 men, women and children had taken up residence in the fertile glens and along the rich creek beds of Santa Cruz. As Margaret Cheney described the scene, Every enterprising commune or solo druid grew a patch of cannabis, but it did not end there. More enterprising men began to operate small, portable pill factories in the remoter parts of the forest, turning out LSD and amphetamines for the city market, free of police harassment. A small cult of Satanists from San Francisco liked the landscape and opened a local parish. After them came pretenders, exploiters and hangers-on. The more sensational news media promoted the black mass aura. Small sacrificial animals were occasionally found beheaded. Seemingly random, motiveless killings quickly began to plague Santa Cruz. On October 19, 1970, in a case closely mirroring the slaughter of the residents of the Tate House the year before, John Lindley Frazier, allegedly acting alone, killed all the occupants of a home in Santa Cruz, including a prominent doctor, his wife, secretary, and two children. 
Fraser, who was known to have a strong interest in the occult, was said to have started his own lifestyle as an Aquarian Age hermit living in a six-foot square shack in the woods, a lifestyle later adopted by Ted Kaczynski, who was a subject of MKUltra experiments while he was a young student at Harvard, and who has been named by some researchers as a possible suspect in the Zodiac killings. Just over a week after the Fraser killings, a Halloween card was received from the Zodiac. More cards and letters followed, the last of which arrived in 1974. The murders were never solved, though many believe that, as Inyo County District Attorney Frank Fowles has stated, Manson and the Zodiac Killer were connected. Soon after Fraser's rampage, women began going missing from around the Santa Cruz area. As early as autumn of 1968, reports began surfacing of grisly occult sacrifices being performed in the surrounding mountains. By the summer of 1972, it was clear that Santa Cruz had a problem. Mutilated bodies began showing up in the hills. By the time 1973 rolled around, the bodies were piling up at an alarming rate. In just the first six weeks of the year, eight bodies were found, and women were continuing to disappear. What had once been an idyllic community had been radically transformed, the murder rate had quintupled and Santa Cruz had achieved the rather dubious distinction of having the highest homicide rate in the country. Many of the area's killings were credited to two alleged serial killers, Edmund Kemper and Herb Mullen, who were said to be operating at the same time in the same city, though acting independently of each other. Kemper's bloody odyssey reportedly included eight victims brutally butchered between May 1972 and April 1973, most of them co-eds whose corpses were cannibalized and sexually violated. Mullen was credited with dispatching 13 victims in just four months, from October 13, 1972, through February 13, 1973. Mullen admitted to having a strong interest in the occult, a fact made evident by the nature of the killings attributed to him. The first victim was killed on Friday the 13th, the second on or about Halloween, and the third murder was the stabbing of a Catholic priest in his confessional on November 2nd, celebrated as All Souls Day. To briefly recap, no fewer than six serial killers, mass murderers, Charles Manson, Stanley Baker, Edmund Kemper, Herbert Mullen, John Lindley Frazier, and the Zodiac, were all spawned from the Santa Cruz, San Francisco metropolitan area in a span of just over four years, at a time when serial killers were a rare enough phenomenon that they hadn't yet acquired a name. And another serial killer was said to be at work not far away during the same time frame. As Bundy chronicler Richard Larson recounts, the bodies of at least 14 young women and girls were found, nude and with their belongings missing, in Northern California between December 1969 and December 1973. In the immediate vicinity of each of the bodies was found an elaborate witchcraft symbol of twigs and rocks. Remarkably enough, the crimes collectively attributed to these men did not even account for all the ritualized homicides that occurred in the Bay Area during that time. For example, the murder of Fred Bennett, the captain of the Oakland chapter of the Black Panthers whose mutilated remains were found scattered in the Santa Cruz Hills, was never solved. And many of the young students who were reported missing from local campuses were never found, either dead or alive, and were therefore never listed as homicide victims. On October 12, 1974, the birthday of Alistair Crowley, student Arliss Perry was brutally murdered and left on display in the Stanford Memorial Church on the campus of Stanford University, nestled in the shadows of the Santa Cruz Mountains. Perry was left lying on her back, with her head toward the altar and her legs spread wide. She was nude from the waist down and an altar candle protruded from her vagina, another altar candle was wedged between her exposed breasts. 
Her jeans had been neatly arranged in an inverted V-shape and placed across her splayed legs, forming the Masonic symbol of the compass and the square. Five years earlier, the very same symbol had been left carved into the stomach of Manson victim Leno LaBianca, as the W in the word, war. The prime suspect in the still unsolved murder of Perry is a man named Bill Menser, who knew Charles Manson and at least one of his victims, Abigail Folger. In fact, Menser reportedly had lunch with Folger just a few days before her death. He later was connected to David, son of Sam, Berkowitz as well, and still later was convicted of the Cotton Club murder of aspiring film producer Roy Rattin. A few years after Perry's murder, a new rash of serial killings began in nearby Sacramento, California. These were ultimately attributed to a man named Richard Chase, also known as the Vampire of Sacramento, and the Dracula Killer. These killers, Chase, Manson, Kemper, Mullen, the Zodiac, Frazier and Baker, heralded the dawn of a new era that soon had established serial killers as an ever-present part of the American landscape. Before 1960, fewer than two serial killers a year were reported nationwide. By 1970, the number had climbed to six per year, by 1980, to nearly 20 per year. By 1990, nearly three dozen serial killers a year were being reported across the country. The years covered by the occult bloodbath in Northern California, 1967 through 1973, correspond precisely to the years that the Phoenix program in Vietnam was in full operation, although similar programs, under different names, existed prior to 1967. In September 1973, the head of the Phoenix operation, William Colby, was appointed as the new director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Phoenix had officially come home. Charles Mills Manson was born, no name, Maddox, the son of an alcoholic teenage prostitute. His mother was imprisoned for armed robbery when Charles was just a toddler, so the boy was sent to live with his grandparents. Following that, he lived for a time with an aunt and uncle in Virginia, who sent him off to his first day of school dressed as a girl, just as Henry Lee's mother had done. By age eight, Charles was back with his mother, who occasionally sent him off to stay with a moonshiner uncle. At age nine, he was sent to stay at the Jabalt Home for Boys, a reform school in Terre Haute, Indiana. Three years later, the preteen boy was living alone in a single room at a boarding house until he was discovered by authorities. How he came to be living alone remains something of a mystery. From that point on, Manson spent the vast majority of his life institutionalized. Charles next found himself housed at Boys Town, identified in the Franklin cover-up as a cesspool of pedophilic operations. By the age of 15, Charles was no longer a ward of the state, he had graduated to being a full-fledged convict. In prison, the diminutive Manson was repeatedly raped and beaten by guards and fellow inmates until he managed to escape at the age of 16 and find his way to California. He was soon arrested again and sent to the rather ominously named National Training School for Boys in Washington, D.C. A few years later, he was set free and married briefly and fathered a child, while also working as a pimp. That occupation earned him a lengthy prison stay following a conviction for running an interstate vice ring. Seven years later, he was again set free, after reportedly following Henry Lee Lucas's lead by begging authorities at Terminal Island Prison not to release him.